This episode is brought to you by Grasshopper Climbing. I got to climb with Boone Speed and try out the Grasshopper board when I interviewed him last summer, and I immediately fell in love with the Grasshopper board. I'm an engineer by trade, and whenever I climb in a new gym or on a new kind of training board, I'm always noticing little things I would change, little things that bug me or that I would want to fix or design differently. With the Grasshopper board, I can honestly say that I wouldn't change a thing. These guys put a ton of thought into their hold shaping and their layout, and I think this board has the highest bang for your buck training value or just climbing value of any board I've ever climbed on. I totally got my ass kicked trying a bunch of V7s. They were super fun to climb on, and they felt hard for the right reasons. They weren't weird or tweaky. The movement was complex and interesting. You had to get the body positions right, but it's super powerful as well and requires you to really try hard to hang on with your fingers. The holds are comfortable, but you really need to engage on them. And I think the board is really good for gaining finger strength, which is something I am always working on. And the coolest part about the board is that because Grasshopper's walls are all adjustable, this board is for everybody. No matter what level you are currently at in your own climbing ability, the Grasshopper board has thousands of possible climbs you can do. It's like having an entire climbing gym right there in your garage. They even have a sport climbing feature that allows you to do routes. Just pick a route from the app, the lights change as you climb, and you can go up and down and around the board for up to 100 moves in a row. I personally think the Grasshopper board is the best climbing training tool I've ever seen. But don't take my word for it. The folks at Grasshopper believe in their product and they just want you to try it out for yourself and see what you think. If you want to learn more, head over to grasshopperclimbing.com or check them out on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing. And if you love what you find and decide to invest in your very own Grasshopper board, be sure to tell them I sent you because the folks at Grasshopper are offering you guys, listeners to this podcast, $500 off when you order a fully kitted out 8 by 10 foot board. That's their smallest board. And you can save even more than that if you upgrade to a larger board. Again, that's grasshopperclimbing.com or on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing to learn more and connect with their team. And be sure to tell them I sent you to save $500 or more on your very own grasshopper. This episode is also brought to you by Climbwell. Do you ever feel like the biggest thing holding your climbing and training back are actually not the physical things? Maybe it's work-life balance. You just don't have enough time to get outside or stick with the training plan. Maybe it's your mental game. Fear or negative self-talk are holding you back. Or maybe you just realize that climbing is a mental sport. You have a hunch that a little more focus and mindfulness will help you break through to the next level. Well, if any of that sounds familiar, then you have to check out Climbwell. Climbwell is hosting their next four-day retreat in Rifle, Colorado this summer. The dates are June 9th through the 12th for any climbers interested in mindfulness and personal growth. And the Climbwell team is offering you guys, the listeners to the Nugget Climbing Podcast, 10% off their four-day retreat in Rifle. Again, the dates are June 9th through the 12th. Just head over to climbwell.co, that's .co, and use the discount code NUGGET10 at checkout. To save 10% off your ticket, there are limited spots, so definitely consider signing up soon. And if you do, I hope you have an amazing time at the retreat. 
Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. And my guest today is Jordan Cannon. Jordan is a professional climber who has been absolutely crushing it in Yosemite in recent years with multiple in a day free ascents of El Cap. He's climbed Freerider in a day and Golden Gate in a day. He did that second one, I believe it was like a week after Emily Harrington. And he's also done some really impressive link-ups in Yosemite Valley, including climbing the Triple Crown, which is climbing El Cap, Half Dome, and Mount Watkins, the three largest faces in Yosemite in less than 24 hours, which is just amazing. And one of the things that impresses me most about Jordan's story is that he started climbing at age 19, and I believe he's still in his 20s, so he's put together quite an impressive tick list in a relatively short period of time without starting as a gym kid and getting super strong at a young age. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I've been talking to Jordan about doing this for quite a long time, and we've barely missed each other living on the road at several climbing areas. And this one was really fun. He was in his van in Bishop, California. I was in my van in Waco. We recorded this about five weeks ago when I was still in Waco. Just did it over Zoom. But yeah, really fun to have a van-to-van conversation with Jordan and finally get a chance to get to know him. We covered his origin story, how he got into climbing. We talked about playing soccer in college and what led him away from organized team sports and how that fed into seeking adventurous climbing in Yosemite. Jordan shared some of his top van life tips. He shared some of his memorable big wall pooping stories. That was hilarious. We talked about the difference in free climbing El Cap in a day versus multiple days. He really helped me understand just how different those accomplishments are as someone who's done both. We talked about the value of dirt bagging, and we also talked about Jordan's classroom analogy for Yosemite and why we don't need to level up and get super awesome at climbing before we go to Yosemite. Jordan makes the case that you can start as a beginner in Yosemite, and Yosemite has all of the steps that you need to progress all the way to free climbing El Cap. So that was really cool to hear about. And yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. Jordan's a great guy, really easy to talk to. He's got a really calm, soothing voice, as you'll hear. And I think we're going to have another conversation later this year. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one. And without further ado, here is Jordan Cannon. All right, I'm in a I'm in a, like a pretty quiet neighborhood in the van in my friend's driveway, so shouldn't be too noisy or anything. Where are you in the world? Um, I'm in Bishop right now, uh, particularly in West Bishop, um, parked in a friend's driveway. Nice. Yeah. Have you ever been out there? Do you know the neighborhood I'm talking about? West Bishop. Yeah. It's kind of like near Manor Market as you're on your way to uh, to the Buttermilks or something. Okay. You know, so it's a little further outside of town. It's like a really nice little kind of secluded neighborhood, super quiet. A lot of the like folks have lived here for a really long time. Nice. Um, have houses out here. Does Peter? Does Peter. Yeah, does Croft live yeah, right? Yeah, I'm like, there? I can see his house right now. Yeah, oh, like okay. Right down, the, right down the road. Yeah, I recorded his episode in his living room. Oh, awesome. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering, I was wondering if that was in person. Yeah. So you know exactly where I'm talking. We about. were going to like, we were going to like meet up. We met up at the Black Sheep and we were going to do it in my van and it was 
hot and noisy or something. I can't remember what the deal was, but he invited me back to his house and I was like scared. <laughs> so, <laughs> so intimidated, but he was so friendly I, and it was awesome. Yeah. I've known Peter for years and I still get <clears throat> intimidated going over to his house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm ready cool. to go. I'm recording. Do you want to just ro- oh, okay. roll right into this thing? You ready to go? Sure, sure. Yeah, I was I was just gonna say that that um, that episode you did with Peter was like what, I mean, it was one of your first episodes, but that was what sold me on the podcast, you know. And I mean, I'll basically listen to any climbing podcast, but as soon as you have Peter on there, I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. How did you first connect with him? Because I know he was an early mentor of yours, climbing in the gorge together around Bishop. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually hired Peter as a guide as kind of a, uh, what would you call it? Just a graduation present to myself coming out of college. Uh, but I got the idea because I didn't know that you could do that. I didn't know that that was a thing. Um, but I got the idea from Bob Gaines, who was, um, you know, he's an old climber from the seventies, but he's a big guide in Joshua Tree now. And he was my like AMJ instructor as I was kind of going down the, you know, becoming a guide track, getting my single pitch instructor certification and all that. And I love those courses with Bob because we would just hang out in Joshua Tree and I'd get to ask him about all these stories from the past and, you know, ask him about photos that he had taken of Peter soloing and things like that. And, and I think I just probably bugged him enough that he was like, you know, Jordan, you should really just like call Peter up and hire him to go climbing with you. And I was like, can you do that? And he's like, yeah, here's his number. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> mortified, you know? But yeah, I sent him an email, super friendly guy. We, I think we met up in Bishop, maybe like around Christmas time or something, like winter break from during my senior year. And yeah, we had an awesome day climbing in the gorge. And then he really kind of sold me on the idea of moving up to Bishop after college and, and spending some time there. And we climbed on the Hulk that summer. And yeah, after he like fulfilled his guiding days that I paid him for, he's like, you know, you don't you don't have to hire me to climb with you anymore. Like we can just go climbing as friends. And oh, I was that's like, great. Yeah. Says a lot to his character, I think. Well, and to yours, you must've been a fun climbing partner for him or else he wouldn't have offered. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> sure. What did, uh, what did those days look like for you? Like, did you go into those days with a list of questions for Peter? Were you just eyes wide open trying to soak up everything and just watch him and, and learn as much as you could? Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. I think all of the above, you know, whenever you're around a climbing hero like that, whether it's just hanging out somewhere or actually climbing at the crag, you know, there's just a ton of questions that you want to ask about stories or things you've read or heard or, you know, get their, get their input on. And so, yeah, I tried to just take advantage of, of that. I probably annoyed, annoyed the hell out of him to an extent, you know, but it's like, you can't, that's what you have to do when you're around somebody who's been, you know, around for so long and has so much wisdom and insight into into the sport and things that, things that you might want to do. And, um, yeah, but as well, uh, he was actually the one that really turned me on to sport climbing. I don't know if you, if you know anything about that. Cause I had basically when I got into climbing, I was pretty like looking for something outside of, you know, more competitive or you know, sporty vibe. I was looking for a more adventurous vibe. And 
Uh, and that quickly turned me off to like training and bouldering and most gym climbing and sport climbing and just kind of pursuing strictly crack climbing and traditional climbing, you know, who I saw him as like the king of. And so when he was like, oh, Jordan, you should really consider sport climbing. It's super fun and it'll teach you all these things and it'll you can apply that back to your trad climbing. And I think that's really what it took, you know, my like trad climbing hero, so to speak, mm. kind of showing me the dark arts of sport climbing, <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Well, it's, yeah, it's so often the case that these guys that seem like ultra specialists, like Peter, like Honold, you know, they do it all. Like Honold spends, I don't know, 80% of his time sport climbing or something. I know you've climbed with him a lot now too. Um, totally. But yeah, climbing's climbing at the end of the day. Um, I want to, yeah, let's, let's bookmark that because I want to, at some point in this conversation, ask you about what your experience has been like diving deeper into sport climbing and especially branching outside of the more vertical technical uh, face climbing and technical stuff that you have a background in. And I know you've been spending time at Potosi. I'd love to hear how that's, what you're learning from that and gaining from that and whether that's um, filtering back into your Yosemite goals and things along those lines. Yeah. But first sure. things first, man, it's uh, really good to have you here, Jordan. We've been talking about doing this for, I don't know, probably a year now. And it's, uh, I was hoping to do it in person, you know, like we got so close so many times. I think there were maybe four or five times where I would show up to an area and you had just left or we, we would overlap for a day, but not manage to connect. And it, we just kept having all these near misses. Um, so I'm glad we're finally doing it and can't do it in person, but you're in your van, I'm in my van and, uh, it feels right. It's nice to finally connect yeah. with you and, and meet you. <laughs> yeah, so totally. to speak. Yeah. Maybe, maybe one day we'll be able to do, uh, you know, follow up down the, on in person down the road, but that is the crux with two nomadic <laughs> climbers living in their cars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're all over the place all the time. It's hard to, hard to, yeah, cross paths, but yeah, thanks for having me. I'm psyched. We're making it happen considering. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Pleasure to have you here. Um, and I have this amazing list of notes in front of me that all, all these like interesting things, you know, that span so many different topics. Um, who knows how much of it we'll get to today. But I really want to, because I don't know this about you, I want to go back to your origin story. And you just talked about, you know, being a kid and kind of seeking out the more adventurous side. And it sounds like you had tried maybe traditional sports or just you just were drawn to something other than kind of the mainstream. Where did that first come from? And, and I wondered if you could maybe kick things off with this note that I have in front of me of you teaching yourself how to sport climb in a tree <laughs> when you were seven years old, because that's an incredibly irregular way to discover and learn how to climb. And I'm sure there's a story there. It just is hilarious. So, yeah. 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 I don't think I've shared that story, uh, or my like true origin story on a podcast before. And it doesn't come up very often. So I'm happy to dive in a little deep, but don't, don't let me go too deep because we could spend a lot more time on that than people would probably find interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I say when people ask where I'm from, where I'm from, I generally just say the East coast because I lived in a lot of States all over the East coast. Um, but the region I identified most with and, and enjoyed living in the most was uh, New England. I was born in Tennessee, but you know, before my first birthday, I think we moved to, we moved to New England and we lived in uh, Connecticut, Vermont, and Maine. And always in small towns with a lot of you know, access to the woods and 
woods and things. And so I remember, you know, I was a pretty energetic little kid and always liked playing outside and, um, and climbing on things. And then, you know, as I got older, was really into kind of dressing up as like the characters in the books or movies that I loved, like Lord of the Rings or Indiana Jones or Harry Potter, that, you know, that kind of stuff. And I always liked climbing on things. You know, my mom has stories about me climbing out of my crib from an early age, you know, stemming up the doorways kind of thing, like climbing on top of the the house and, and trees outside. And so the kind of more I learned about rock climbing, which maybe I kind of remember going to some kind of birthday party at a gym, maybe when I was four or five in Connecticut, and then uh, maybe seeing rock climbers outside for the first time. I'm not even sure if it was in New England, but um, definitely down in North Carolina on Looking Glass Rock, visiting my grandparents one summer. But there was a there was a local gear shop that I remember going to a few times and picking up catalogs for. And I like cherished these one, this Metolius catalog and this Black Diamond catalog. And I think maybe at, at around the same time, I'd also seen like, uh, did you ever see the film uh, Vertical Limit? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's I think I had a copy one. of it on VHS. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <clears throat> the nitroglycerin. Yeah. They're like throwing shoes that turn into bombs and stuff. Yeah. Honestly, I, <laughs> I did not give, I was not interested at all in like the alpine mountaineering aspect of that. I just loved the opening scene, mm. even though it like is totally ridiculous and tragic, you know, like three people end up dying. But the fact that they're just rock climbing on this multi-pitch tower, like in the desert, you know, and like placing cams and stuff just totally like caught my, caught my attention. Um, and so that in addition, I can't remember the name of this other one, but I believe it was with Kristen Stewart. Um, maybe it's like catch that kid or something. It was some kind of like dumb spy movie, you know, kind of like spy kids in a way, but she was like the opening scene is her basically, it makes no sense from a climbing perspective, but essentially she's like free rope soloing this like water tower, you know, and she's like clipping quick draws and she's like, you know, she's like essentially lead climbing and she falls and like pulls all these draws because they like pull out of the wall and, you know, she almost like hits the ground and stuff. But anyways, so that, and then at the end of the film, she's like breaking into some safe or vault or something. And she's like cam jugging with like eighters and two number one camelots, like going up this track. And then <laughs> it peers out and she's like, I have to go free solo or something ridiculous. <laughs> My point being like those visuals from those two movies paired with the images that I saw in the the Black Diamond and Metolius catalogs that I have, which looking back, you know, this is the early 2000s. It was probably like Chris Sharma sport climbing and Tommy Caldwell, big wall climbing on O'Cap and, you know, uh, Steph Davis, like crack climbing and Indian Creek, all paired with ads for cams and quick draws and portal ledges and all that stuff. You know, I kind of started to like gain this understanding and I just had this image. I was like, man, I want to be a rock climber. And so just as I would dress up like Frodo and run around the woods, I like pretended to be a rock climber. And uh, how I did that was like this one tree in my backyard in Maine that I really like to climb all the time. I tried to just like scavenge together a bunch of gear. Like uh, I, ba- I remember making a harness, you know, a quote harness out of like duct tape and duffel bag straps. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, and then having like, 
shoestring and like little carabiners from the, you know, from like Walmart or something and basically just stringing them up the tree and then trailing some like cord that I found in the garage and like climbing the tree like I always would. But this time I was like clipping quick draws like, you know, I saw in the photos and stuff. And uh, yeah, it sounds ridiculous, but I think it, I think it helped. The first time I did ever actually go to a climbing gym years later and was presented with like, you know, I saw the quick draws dangling on the wall. I was like, I want to go lead climbing. Mm. And they were like, well, you have to take a test to do that. And I was like, okay. And I just passed the test having never like actually lead climbed before. Like first day, like first day in a climbing gym. Yeah. <laughs> which I don't, I don't, That's I don't think amazing. at the time they would ask you like what back clipping was or like Z clipping or any of those things. I definitely would not have known, but from a pure, like, climbing standpoint i managed to pass i remember being super gripped though because i was like actually on lead for the first time and felt <laughs> you know the risk of falling or something right and did you first so, go ahead if you have more keep going no that that was it that's my long-winded kind of story <laughs> the only other there is another element to that more uh focused on traditional climbing but we can get there Okay. Well, I have this other note here that says you first told your mom that you wanted to be a rock climber at age four. And I can't imagine you were growing up at three years old watching Vertical Limits. So do you remember, like, is that true? Like, what was the mental image of a rock climber in your four-year-old brain? Because I had zero concept of that until, I don't know, I was almost 16 years old or something like that. Yeah. That's a good question. And I, I'm not sure if I have a good answer for you. Um, my mom only recently shared that note with me like a year or two ago. Um, you know, as if she knew it all along, like, <laughs> Oh, I knew one day you were going to be. <laughs> but when she shared that with me, I got kind of annoyed because, you know, as you'll, as you probably know, I didn't officially get into rock climbing till I was 19, you know, so a long time later, but yeah, she she has like this mom journal, you know, that I, I'm sure a lot of parents have like things that they keep track of as their kid grows up and goes through various stages of life. And she has this very specific note like, oh, Jordan was climbing and, you know, he said one day he wants to be a rock climber or something. And yeah, I guess four years old, maybe that was around the time that I think I went to some birthday party in Connecticut, but uh, that's the best answer I have. Because you're right, certainly I hadn't seen those films I talked about yet. I don't know. I think I just knew that I liked climbing and I maybe I'd seen one thing, you know, maybe I didn't mean it at the time, but it's kind of funny to look back on and think that I actually did say that from a young age. But yeah, when she told me that, I was like, and you did nothing? You knew I had this passion <laughs> for climbing and you guys didn't necessarily facilitate? Yeah. You know? I could be climbing 515 by sport. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all wish we started earlier, but... Yeah. I just don't think, I don't hold against them. I don't think they're super, super aware. And yeah, it's a hard sport to get into. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, unless you grow up on the team in the climbing gym, it is. Um, and let me ask you this. It's, I mean, of course, it's impossible to really know, but I wonder what your feeling on this is. Do you think you appreciate climbing more or differently because you started later in life, started at 19? Um, cause I certainly do. I started at 18 and started at zero, like V zero. I had no experience. I was terrible. And I think that has really like being able to look back at my adult life basically and, and be able to remember such a 
breadth um, or, or so much growth, I guess, like such a breadth of experience level and be able to kind of remember each step of the way. I think it's really enriched climbing for me and, and kept me really interested. Whereas, you know, not all kids, but a lot of kids that started young and don't really remember what it was like to suck. Um, you know, I think some of them take it for granted. It's, I, I see a lot of them lose interest or they have to kind of rediscover something new and different about climbing that captivates them. But yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Oh, that's a good point you bring up because it is easy to get caught up in like wishing things were different than they actually were. Like we started climbing earlier, for example, but uh, I try not to go down those those thought patterns because they're generally not very productive. But yeah, actually, I I do think I appreciate climbing more because I found it later in life because it was such an aha thing for me when I finally came around to it, you know? I mean, you mentioned team sports, which we can talk about a little bit. Um, but yeah, I was a very active kid growing up and was really just trying to find my find my place and, you know, productive ways to expel my my energy and, you know, make friends and all that. And I found things that I liked, certainly uh, soccer being the main one. I played soccer mostly my whole life and into college and things, but yeah, nothing really just gave me like the the satisfaction or the confidence or the purpose or the, you know, the meaning that climbing has given me now. And so I was really just kind of bumbling through life, not really like that excited about anything. But the one thing I was excited about was climbing and it took forever to get there. But when I finally kind of dove into it, it was like, yes, mm. now, now I see life as this positive thing. Whereas before I, I didn't, I didn't really, you know, it seems kind of depressing, but that was that was true. So mm. maybe cliche to say, but yeah, climbing definitely like saved my life in a way, you know? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So I appreciate it for, for that sense. Yeah, that's huge. And you mentioned earlier that you getting into climbing, you were really drawn to the adventure over the sport of it. Um, what was it about that? What was it that you, I mean, does it just go back to being a kid and having, having those images in your mind? Um, Perhaps, maybe there was some influence there. I think it was more the fact that I was just kind of burned out on team sports. Okay. Um, and the dynamic that, you know, team sports cultivates within a group of people. Um, I always liked sport because of, you know, the discipline that it brought to my life that, you know, you know a lot of climbers can relate to now, you know, working on a project and, you know, caring about your diet and your sleep and your training and, you know, trying to like maximize all the things that you can in your life to, to perform or play well or win. And I always seem to bring a little bit more intensity to the activities I did than the other players on my team. And it really bothered me. Like <laughs> they were slowing you down. No, I don't want to say that, but they're kind of constant. I was constantly being let down by my teammates mm. because in order to like really be your best self on a team, you know, you have to look out for the other people around you. You have to play for the other people on your team because if you're trying really hard, but all the people around you aren't trying really hard, like you're not going to be able to be your best, you know? Sure. Um, and, and then they just, it gets more complicated with needing good coaches and good training and, and all that. And so I kind of just got burnt out on it. I felt like soccer was my thing and I really wanted to see how far I could take it. But I just felt at the end, like 
held back by all these things that were outside of my control and ultimately like dissatisfied with, uh, yeah, knowing that I didn't reach my full, full potential. And so when I found, when I found climbing, it was like, when I found rock climbing, like climbing outside, um, you know, not climbing trees and stuff, it reconnected me with like, yeah, this kind of childlike thing that I always knew that I really enjoyed. But yeah, I guess it came in, it came in in college as I was kind of like winding down my soccer career and being like, what's going to happen after that? Like, am I going to be, obviously I'm not going to go pro with soccer or anything. So if I want to keep doing this, I'm just going to end up in some, you know, like beer league with a bunch of has-beens like playing at the YMCA or something. And like, that's fun, but I didn't want that to be the extent of my, my, I guess, athletic life. And so, but when I got into climbing, I was looking for something outside of the the more like competitive sports side of things. And when I was more presented with bouldering and sport climbing and the gym and training, that's kind of, I categorized it as such. You mm. know, I was like, ah, that seems too much like what the world I just came from and I'm looking for something different. And that's why I kind of took a very unconventional path nowadays into, you know, traditional and big wall climbing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it, you know, at 19, you discover climbing? Was it a person? Was it a first outdoor trip? Was it a specific climb or experience? What was it that kicked off the cascade, as it were, towards this new life that you've discovered? So we lived in New England for about 10 years and then moved to South Carolina, which is where I went to a, a climbing gym for the first time. Although you should really like look up photos or include this in some way <laughs> because it's not a climbing gym by modern standards. When kids are like, I grew up in a gym, like I was definitely not that. Mm. It was like, it's at a, it's called the James Island County Park Climbing Wall. It's an outdoor wall. It's like this 50 foot wooden octagon in the middle of the woods at this park where it's not really necessarily made for climbers. It's made more for people coming to the park on the weekend with their families and like going to the splash zone or like riding bikes along the trail and going fishing and like canoeing in the the lake and that kind of stuff. And like, oh, maybe checking out rock climbing or the ropes course. And so, you know, it was open like a few days a week, only a few months a year. The holds were like 30 years old. They always had water in them because it rains a lot there. And it's like, woodpeckers coming out of the wall no one's like, ever used chalk on these things <laughs> dude it was it was so it was so heinous but like they did have they had this one employee there uh davy um and a few core members um who would you know also go climbing in like upstate south carolina or north carolina or there's even this guy patrick who like took this trip to colorado and like came back with all these epic stories and things but yeah, it was really Davey, the one who kind of saw my enthusiasm and, and tried to share some, you know, what he knew with me. And I don't really remember any specifics, but he would tell me about like going to Joshua Tree and going to Yosemite and more generally just climbing in, you know, out West and out in California and things. And yeah, he kind of imprinted this idea in my mind. It was like, okay, one day, I don't know when or how, but I'm going to get out of South Carolina. I'm going to go out west and I'm going to climb out there in all the places that he told me about. And yeah, even at that point, you know, having 
these people around me who are climbing and kind of going to the gym, this gym while also doing other sports in high school and, and things. Um, this, I still didn't really see like a clear way in the sport. I didn't like know how I didn't like know w- like what gear I needed to buy, like who I needed to climb with, you know, places to go. It was also kind of vague, but I eventually got out to California and kind of pieced it, pieced it all together. So. Well, that's your question. Yeah, yeah, it does. But that's interesting. I mean, that's like you eventually come out to California and piece it all together. I mean, that's like a short sentence. That's a massive story. Um, You just like steal a family car and just come out here and hope to meet people or. Okay. Yes. (laughs) There are more specifics (laughs) to the story. Um, I think my, my brother and I took a road trip. I think it was my uh, right after graduating from high school. Um, We, drove up to um from south carolina all the way to minnesota um where i have some family on my mom's side um that i'd never i'd never been up there before so we we took a road trip kind of drove through like chicago and visited some of his friends there and then um and then i think on our way we stopped at a climbing gym in minneapolis and that was my first time going to like a mega gym you know Mm. um i forget the name vertical endeavors i think it was called maybe but yeah, I met some climbers there because my brother didn't know how to belay. And I, I, all I wanted to do was like climb the steep, you know, like lead cave longer routes and things. And so I, I uh, shyly like asked these people if they would give me a belay. And then they invited me out to this crag called Red Wing. I don't know, some scrappy little sport climbing area, I think. And I maybe joined them like for an afternoon and top rope some routes, maybe led one thing or something. But I think that was my like my first outdoor rock climbing experience. And then aside from just wanting to move to California, I'd also really wanted to play soccer in California. Um, I was playing soccer uh, <clears throat> at the College of Charleston um, for my freshman year. And yeah, knowing that I tried to transfer. And so after my freshman year, I transferred to a school in San Diego. And I think I flew there the first year, but my second year, so I guess... Um, I drove my car cross country. I had this shitty little Honda CRV, and I picked up one of my teammates in Nebraska, and we stopped in Colorado. And I met up with a friend from from school in South Carolina, and went climbing in Boulder Canyon for the first time. She had some friends that kind of kind of took me out, but that was really lackluster. But by the time I did get to California, you know, for my next year of college, and I had a car. And I had these two outdoor climbing experiences. I was like, okay, now I'm ready. Now I'm ready to like <laughs> get after it. <laughs> and I guess, do you want that that initial story? Like my first? Yeah, please. Let's let's do it. Okay. Um, I believe um, as soon as I had a car at college and I wasn't, you know, stuck on campus essentially and just playing soccer, I went to a climbing gym and got a membership. And that's where I started to try and like dive into the, you know, the community and meet people and try and start making plans to go outside. And I already heard about Joshua Tree, but this one guy that I was climbing with mentioned it. And I was like, yeah, what is Joshua Tree like? Tell me about it. And he's like, oh, it's basically just like this big cluster of rocks stacked on top of each other. And you can kind of just like wander and tunnel around and like find things to climb. And he was, he was mainly a boulderer. And, um, so he was just like talking about boulder problems there. I was like, cool. And so I borrowed a rope from somebody and I just had a rope and some quick draws. And I went out there um, with a friend I dragged out from the gym and 
just remember wandering around for a whole day, just like looking for things to climb. I was just like, well, and as soon as I got there, I was like, man, that guy's description does not match. There are like <laughs> thousands of, of piles of rocks all over the place. Um, so we basically just wandered around Hinnick Valley campground looking for like bolts on top of things that I could maybe scramble to the top of and set up a top rope, although I didn't really know how to do that. Um, and, and it was a bust. We wandered around all day and didn't climb anything. And this is before I knew like about guidebooks. I was really a, like, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but that, that night we were hanging out back at camp, kind of just like setting up our tent and these German guys came wandering around asking us for like some beta for the, the campground. And I, I told them like where to pay. And then I asked, I was like, Hey, are you guys, are you guys climbers? They're like, Oh yeah, we're here from, we're here from Germany. And I was like, Oh, cool. Like, do you guys have gear? They're like, yeah, we have a number one, a number two and some nuts. And I was like, cool. <laughs> I have a rope and I'm going to go buy the guidebook tomorrow. Like if I bring the guidebook, can I go climbing with you guys? And they're like, Oh yeah, sure. And so I basically, uh, joined up with them for a whole weekend and, and climbed. And I don't remember having any kind of conversation, like at them asking me about my experience or anything, but our first day they were just like, you know, we went to this climate intersection rock. Um, and they're like, Hey, you want to lead? And I was like, fuck yeah i've never led before but <laughs> i'd played with cams in like in the store and you put them in some cracks and stuff so i was like i know how to do this <laughs> well but i was gripped on my mind you know because yeah, we didn't necessarily choose the best climb relative to the gear we had but uh it, it taught me something about desire you know um is even though i only had you know essentially two pieces and then some nuts that i didn't know how to place and we were climbing this like wide route anyways, I was just like, man, I have the, so much desire to climb that I'm not going to let this like shut me down. And I was relatively aware. I like, didn't think I was being dangerous. I didn't feel like I was going to fall, but you know, some people might get shut down on that kind of thing now. And then even if with all the fancy gear in the world, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't have the desire to actually go out there and do it, you're only going to get so far. So yeah. that's kind of what I, that's kind of what I learned that weekend. Well, <laughs> also, I remember getting to the top of a, there was this two pitch route on intersection rock called back crack. And I got to the top and there was a two bolt anchor, thankfully, because I would not have known what to do otherwise. And I kind of just like clipped myself in and, you know, I'd known how to belay from a blow, you know, top roping, but I had no idea how to belay from above. And thankfully I did it well, something well enough to not like be sketchy necessarily. <laughs> um, but that enlightened me afterwards, like of all the things I didn't know. So as soon as I got home from that trip, I was like, Google how to belay from above, how to build an anchor, all that stuff. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that kind of timestamps this thing. I was going to ask that because it's a unique, it's a unique thing to a few years later, be the kid that's like, for my graduation, I'm going to treat myself and hire Peter Croft to guide me. So I was curious, yeah. like what, you know, we had Google at the time. So what kinds of things were you absorbing and reading? Did you have a, a strong interest in climbing history right away? What were you uh, exposing yourself to, I guess, to educate yourself and discover heroes like Peter Croft and, and others? Yeah, I think I have uh, the climbing gym that I went to um, and ended up working at. They gave me an, an internship, you know, to, that I had to get through school anyways. 
and then through that i got a job and, and was able to work there and things um but it was that as partnered with um this one guy dennis who i hope he listens to this and hears this uh but he he's this he was a client or member i worked at the ymca in the weight room um, as well i had a few different jobs in college and he uh had this you know this badass friend that he knew from the military who was a ifmga guide and climbed in all over the world and they would do things in in red rocks and such and he was the one that kind of lended me you know my first rope and some cams and some quick draws and you know my first rack essentially but yeah i think it was just really from working at the gym and reading all the the magazines that they had on hand it was the the wall climbing gym in northern san diego and chatting with folks there and then really just deep dives on the internet you know uh looking up as many youtube videos that would lead to like old climbing videos to real rocks to the whole center films collection to you know how to climb 512 eric horst's book to like you know the anderson brothers to the peter crofts like trad climbing bible all that stuff i basically like considered the that education more important than the education i was actually paying for <laughs> in school <laughs> what <laughs> was, were you so it's kind of Go ahead. I was just going to ask, what were you studying in college? Um, I was studying um, English, art, and exercise science. Oh, wow. That's quite a collection. Okay. <laughs> Basically, what I should tell you is I had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, don't know about, I don't know about you, but I mean, we're, we're all kind of like told to some extent, like, go to college, you know? It's like one of the steps. Um, what did you study exactly? I started out, same as you, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I started out taking a bunch of math classes because I had always been good at math and I was studying music at the same time because I'd always been good at music and I'd never, mm. I had never um, worked hard at it and I wanted to provide myself with some external pressure and motivation to try to kind of like tap into more of my potential and explore my potential and see what that looked like with music. And <clears throat> I enjoyed that, but, um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately college for me, it was similar. It was kind of just like this expectation, you know, you pick something, you make the most out of it, you do something that makes sense. And I switched from, I realized that I had no interest in math, you know, I was good at it, but it just like, there was nothing tangible about it. I had no idea conceptually what the hell we were doing or where in my mm -hmm. life I would ever use this. So I pivoted to engineering and studied material science engineering. <clears throat> and I could kind of, I was becoming more and more interested in climbing along the way, starting at 18. And I I also had a job at my, uh, my college at Western Washington University as a root setter and things. And so I was kind of, I could kind of envision like a life in the outdoors designing gear, you know, mm. manufacturing gear, something along those lines and figured that if I cool. just got this degree, I'd find my way there. Yeah. But yeah, it was kind of just like, I'm here. I don't really know what I want to do. I don't really have time to stop and explore and figure it out. So I'll just pick like the least bad thing and just roll, yeah. roll with it. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I asked that to see if you had you know, some sort of idea, like I'm getting this degree so I can hopefully get a job in this field or something. Because uh, I was really envious of my classmates who, you know, had a little bit more of an idea 
um, of yeah. the things they wanted to, to study, you know, with the intention of getting some jobs and whether they really knew that or just thought they knew that, you know, they at least had some kind of something to give them direction. And really when people, you know, when I was kind of told like, yeah, go to college, I was like, okay, really the only reason I want to go to college is to play soccer, you know, on a more competitive level. Um, but I was like, if I'm here, I have to study something. So I was just what I was interested in, which was mainly philosophy, English, writing, art, like I was into photography a little bit. And uh, and then, yeah, the only thing I was like more seriously considering was like exercise science because I always liked, you know, working with physios or uh, PTs or, you know, all the people kind of behind the scenes helping athletes be their best. I always found that stuff kind of interesting. But I had no, no idea what I was going to do afterwards or at all. So mm. I was lost in that sense and climbing thankfully gave me something focus on are you a professional climber at this point i am surprisingly um i don't really know how i managed to to make it to that point but yeah thankfully it's 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 all it's all worked out i'm going on what i think is my the start of my fourth year yeah that's incredible that's really impressive and incredible to start at 19 and find a path that allows you to sustain a living doing this. And it seems like you have been really good at leveraging your your passion and your interest and in finding a, a really unique niche for yourself in climbing. And I, I'm curious to hear how that evolved. You know, have you just always done what was most interesting to you or have you been strategic? Like, I think I can stand out if I dive headfirst into this specific facet of the sport and learn as much as I can or some combination of those things. What did it look like to work your way towards some of these accomplishments in Yosemite that have really caught people's, people's attention and caught the attention of brands and made your name kind of start to stand out? Yeah, I think um, there was no real, there was no real plan uh, behind it all. I was really just trying to, to make myself happy and follow the things that, that interested uh, that interested me the most. And, you know, I moved into my van in college. And then uh, after I saw the film Valley Uprising, that was really what sold me. Okay. Because basically, yeah, when I, when I got into climbing at the gym, you know, I had this idea that I wanted to, you know, pursue more adventurous styles of climbing, basically just tried climbing, not like nothing crazy, not big, big mountain climbing or alpine climbing or anything. Um, but yeah, like I said, I just, I knew that uh, bouldering and sport climbing and, you know, people telling me you need to train at the gym. And I was like, why? I don't really feel like I need to for things I want to do. I feel like I just need to go outside and climb a lot and get better. You know, it really kind of turned me off to a lot of the, uh, to a lot of things and made me, unfortunately it did make me feel kind of alone. I was like, man, I seem to be the only one interested in like wanting to go out and pursue these things, which made me kind of want to do it, do it more, you know, in like defiance of that to some extent. But that was that was always just because that's what I found most interesting, and that's what I felt like felt most intuitive doing. And what specifically are you talking about? Just tried climbing, adventure climbing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it was a big turning point for me when I realized, you know, I would love going to the gym and asking people, like, "Well, what's your, you know, where are you climbing this weekend? Like, what's your plan?" You know hoping to hear that they're going to say like, oh, they're going to Red Rock or Joshua Tree or Black Mountain or, well, I don't know, somewhere. 
Idlewild and then them being like, what? Nowhere. We're just going to stay here and climb at the gym. And I was mm. like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I, that's when I knew I had to get out of San Diego. There's a pretty good climbing mm. community there. And I certainly have a lot of friends there and learned a lot from a few key, few key people. But, um, it became clear to me early on. I was like, okay, as soon as I get out of college, I got to like get out of San Diego so I can dive deeper into, uh, into, you know, the real climbing world, I guess. Mm. And you're now known, you're, you know, your name is, is associated. If I think of you, if I think of Jordan Cannon, I immediately think of what you've done in Yosemite. It seems like the, I mean, those things, some of those accomplishments, free climbing some of those routes in a day, especially in the last year or two, um, have, have really elevated your name as a top level professional climber. What set you down that path? You know, what was it just a random invitation to go to Yosemite for this first time? Or did you, did you seek that out? What created that? What, what am I trying to ask here? Um, no, you're, you're getting there. Yeah. I hear it. <laughs> <laughs> what drew me to Yosemite? Yeah, that's it. That's asking. it. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. As I, as I kind of got embedded in the, the California climbing scene, you know, already having some idea of, you know, the significance of places like Joshua Tree and Yosemite that I had learned from from Davey back in South Carolina, you know, I, I started to just learn more and more. And really, it was just a byproduct of where I was at the time, you know, living in San Diego, uh, Joshua Tree and Idlewild being the closest places, learning about the history of, of the Stone Masters and, you know, the the climbing generation before them that established a lot of the first routes in Idlewild, you know, and then went on to go climbing in Yosemite and then the stone masters coming into Joshua tree and, you know, bringing a more focus on free climbing that they then also brought back to Yosemite. I kind of just, that was the history that I really connected with the most and found the most interesting rather than, you know, the latest sport climber doing whatever or, or boulder problem or, or things like that just didn't really, you know, competitions in the gym just never really caught my attention in the same, in the same way. And I, so I started to piece together all of these like puzzle pieces, essentially of like the greater world of climbing and kind of how, how it all works and where it all kind of came from and how, how it developed, you know, to being where we are now. And it was really, and of course, you know, I was a huge fan of Alex Honnold and Tommy Caldwell. They were like, the two main guys I was, I was looking up to, but it was really, I think seeing Valley uprising for, for the first time, which seems, it seems kind of funny to like say this now, but that movie totally changed my life. Um, that's awesome. And it was mainly because it presented climbing to me in this really interconnected way, um, with all of these players and these stories and, you know, one generation to the next and how the, the sport has evolved and, you know, standing on, shoulders of the people before you and taking inspiration from things they've done and looking at climbing in a new creative way. I just, I kind of saw the timeline of Yosemite climbing history or California climbing history laid out in a way that just like made it all click in my head and it pieced together all these stories I'd heard. And it made me realize up until that point, you know, I knew that I liked climbing as an activity, but I didn't really know what it could be beyond that and valley uprising presented me with like no this is this is a thing that 
a culture and a community that you can be a part of and a history you can contribute and interact with and, mm. you know, players that you can look up to and learn from and, and all that. And so it was, that's what, that's what sold me on it. And I think within a month of seeing that film, I like moved out of my apartment or the dorm and, you know, started living in my car and everybody was like, what is this guy doing with his life? <laughs> but I was like, so sad. I was like, at that point, I was my only goal really to this day, whatever else I accomplish in climbing, which I don't think is going to be much in the like bouldering or sport climbing world. My only goal starting from a young age or from that time in my life was I just wanted to be a Yosemite climber. Mm. And I think I've at least, you know, if I fail at anything else in climbing, I at least feel confident in saying that I am a Yosemite climber to some extent. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And it's interesting, I, I watched that film as well. I love that film. And I think what it does well is it really does capture some of the culture of climbing. And of course, the culture of climbing is a really broad thing now with gyms and competitions on one end of the spectrum and Yosemite, you know, big wall climbing on the other end of the spectrum but that film is this it it like showcases this collection this band of misfits you know it's like climbing is this tribe of misfits these, these weird people who are super geeky and love to you know really explore the the intricacies and the minutia of little handholds and talk about them and you know lay in bed and close their eyes and think about sequences on rocks and solve problems and things like that and hearing you talk about sports and and kind of feeling like an outsider i have to imagine that was a big part of it like did you feel like this is somewhere where i might be able to feel included for the first time in my life i i don't want to put words in your mouth but um i just have to imagine that was part of it no, you're, you're spot on for sure. Because like I mentioned before, you know, kind of getting into the, the climbing gym scene, I just didn't, that never like resonated with me. I did it because I wanted to climb and I wanted to improve. And, you know, when you're going to school five days a week and working, you don't have that much time to climb, go on trips and go outside. But yeah, it was, that was a big aspect of the film. It just presented this place that like, I knew I would feel like I belonged, you know, more so than any other place I'd, I'd been to yet in climbing, I guess. Mm. You talked about climbing history as this thing that you're, we, ha we all have this opportunity to touch and to interact with. I have this note here in front of me that says making history by not trying to make history. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, that's something I've, I've uh, come to realize about a lot of the the people and the stories that I look up to, you know, is that a lot of these people who end up making history in the moment, it was never their, that was never their driving focus necessarily. You know, they were generally just doing things that they found the most interesting or that they were the most passionate about, generally regardless of what everybody else thought. That's like a big theme in the people, the people I look up to, like Peter Croft, you know, he was kind of raging in the 80s and the early 90s in the traditional world with you know big link ups and free solos and hard trad on sites and first free ascents and things when the majority of the climbing world was into hard sport climbing and and red point climbing and you know climbing 514 and wearing spandex and you know even though that was like the hot in vogue thing he was just like no nah, i'm good i'm going to stick to doing what i think is cool and 
you know, so that's always been like the driving force in, in my climbing is trying to like stick to my guns, regardless of what other everybody else is doing around me, but also not be turned, not shut myself off from opportunities that, you know, could teach me a lot, um, as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I think for anybody who ends up climbing for long enough, you know, you want to have an impact on, in some way on the community or the sport, whether that's, you know, bringing something like you've done, like bringing a podcast that entertains and educates a lot of people or somebody like doing a first free ascent on El Cap or just, uh, you know, not, I'm sorry, not a first free ascent, just a first ascent in general, like presenting, like, here's a new climb for the climbing world that you guys can all, you know, enjoy and contributing to history in that way. And so, you know, it's important to me at the end of the day to not feel like I've only climbed for myself my whole life. I'd like to feel like I have contributed in some, in some way. And knowing that people who end up making history aren't necessarily trying to make history. It's like this weird indirect roundabout way that you end up doing it. It's like, well, just follow what you are most passionate about. And hopefully by the end, you know, with the perspective of time, looking back, you'd be like, Oh yeah, I did contribute. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's just one of the things I've, I've learned from observing like history that other people have played a part in, I guess. Yeah. That's a cool idea. And and yeah, you, you described that really well. And as you're talking, I couldn't help but think of Peter Croft. And, you know, I just had an interview recently with Hans Florin and just, he shared these stories. I think Peter Croft and I, I believe it was Dave Schultz that set yeah. the speed record on the nose like twice on accident. You know, each time they're trying to do some like big link up or something and they just like happen to set the, the nose record. And it's just because totally. they just wanted to climb a lot. They just wanted to see how much they could fit into a 24 hour day. And and it's cool how that ends up being like a big part of that history, you know, that people talk about. Uh, yeah, I love that. I want to ask you, like, what has, if anything, to this point in your climbing, you're still really young. I'm sure you still have all of your greatest accomplishments ahead of you. But can you look back at your life of climbing so far and um, feel especially proud of any specific contributions? Do anything stand out that you feel like you've been able to add to to the history books of climbing in Yosemite or or elsewhere? <laughs> not really to be honest i don't i don't feel like i've done anything super significant in terms of you know in terms of history because boy that's the hard thing in climbing nowadays climbing is so big and so diverse and there's so many different avenues that you can take and i'm personally overwhelmed by uh, the amount of things i just want to repeat you know things that other people have done even like 20 years ago that like how can that still be significant or important necessarily you know um versus somebody you know like alex doing new speed records or new link ups or you know new free climbs or free soloing out cap you know he's done so many firsts i've done very few firsts i've done a lot of repeats of things that i'm proud of but you know i feel like in order to one day hopefully contribute something unique and individual that, that I, you know, maybe I'm the first to do. I just feel like there's so much to learn from climbing other people's roots and trying to do these, these, like these other things that, you know, were groundbreaking a sense at the time to kind of like get you into that place where you feel ready mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or does, or deserving even, you know, or deserving. Yeah. Yeah. I, I 100% resonate with that. I feel like I have, more than a lifetime of stuff that I just want to 
try to repeat that other people have done. And these are just boulder problems in Leavenworth where I grew up, you know? <laughs> these are like really Dude, and there's, there's so many. It's overwhelming. In so many places. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that feeling. But I mean, I know that you and what you've accomplished, you're already you already stand out as an inspiration to so many young aspiring Yosemite trad climbers, which is just awesome. I want to hear like what was it like to show up in Yosemite for the first time? And what was it like to learn how to climb in Yosemite? Uh, that's a pretty broad yeah. question. I just want to open it up. Sure, sure. Um, so I believe after after Valley Uprising, I maybe saw that in the fall. Um, that's generally when like the real rock films come out, right? Um, and I took the chance to go to Yosemite the very next opportunity I had, which would have been like Christmas break. Uh, and I remember essentially lying to my professors, like coming up with some BS excuse being like, Oh, I'm not gonna be able to make my exam because I have to like fly home early for this thing or something. And there I went to a small school and had good rapport with all my, my professors and they trusted me. So they were like, Oh yeah, no problem. Like most of mine were written essays and stuff. So like, yeah, you can, you know, just send us in, send us it in from the road. And so I like bailed out of school early and, uh, drove straight up to Yosemite in like the dead of winters, like <laughs> early December, nobody was there. It was super wet and snowy and just like awful climbing conditions. I wasn't even going to climb necessarily. I was just like, I need to see, I like need to see these walls and, and see camp four and see the El Cap Meadow. I was like, I just need to be there and, and like soak it in. And, and yeah, that was my first trip to the Valley. I don't recall climbing at all. I remember hiking a lot. Um, and just kind of like getting a feel for the place. And then, you know, I, I believe I had to go home for, for Christmas back to the East coast. Um, but then that next spring is when I did like my first spring break, like climbing trip, you know, and climbed a lot of the, you know, the popular moderate classics essentially. But one thing that I learned very early on that I can test when people tell me now, you know, I hear a lot of people now say, yeah, man, I really want to go to Yosemite, but I'm like waiting until I get better at trad climbing to go to Yosemite or get better at big wall climbing or whatever, if they have aspirations to climb El Cap, for example. And um, I love pushing back against that because a lot of, maybe, it, I guess it was obvious to me because of that first trip and where I was at in my climbing. Um, but Yosemite has it all, you know? It has every single step like you could take somebody climbing in Yosemite having never climbed before and they could learn all the things that they need to one day climb El Cap from single pitch roots at the base of El Cap or Arch Rock or the Cookie or Church Bowl, you know, from moderate like four to five pitch roots on manure pile buttress or, you know, our middle cathedral or the spires, you know, to big wall climbs on the Leaning Tower and Washington Column and then free climbs like Astroman and the Rostrum, like, there is such a step-by-step -step process, um, you know, from the easiest to the hardest, you know, hardest big wall climb in the world, essentially, and a lot of the hardest aid climbs um, that that you can learn from. And so, um, as soon as I like realized that, I I made a point to uh, focus the majority of my climbing around just learning how to climb in Yosemite and climbing through all of the classic routes from five five to five thirteen, essentially. Um, and that was a big, that was a big uh, realization for me was that like, you know, knowing that I one day wanted to climb El Cap, I could gain all the skills required 
just by climbing all these other awesomely classic and fun routes um, along the way that I think a lot of people forget about for some reason. Yeah. It annoys me, (laughs) (laughs) if I'm being honest. Is that your favorite? Is it your favorite style of climbing? Um, It is. Uh, I definitely can't do it all year long. Um, You know, if I wanted to, I would just live in Yosemite and climb there year year round, which you could do depending on the weather and is if you're willing to change up the style. But I really like just having a big stint in the the fall and the spring, and then and then yeah, climbing climbing elsewhere. Um, and you know, because like yeah, you can't climb big stuff year round. I mean, the the fatigue runs deep, and it takes a lot of mental energy to psych up for a lot of the big things. And so. Nowadays, I realize the importance of, of uh, yeah, diversifying with some some bouldering and some sport climbing and some some traveling and some like, not waking up at you know midnight or three a.m. or five whatever all the time, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, that ultimately like helps you refuel to go back in the spring and be really psyched and take advantage of of uh, of your time in Yosemite, however long it may be. Because I'm sure you've heard it called like if you spend enough time there, it starts to feel like you're in a big ditch with all these things looming over you. And <laughs> it can, it can start to be like kind of negative, you know? Mm. And if you are there for too long, you also tend to get lazy. You're like, Oh, why would I go do this big thing today? When I can just put it off till tomorrow, you know, the weather's good for three months. Why not? Sure. And uh, yeah. So you can get caught in like what we call the vortex where you kind of just end up like, hanging out there for a long time and not actually climbing that much mm. and maybe eventually starting to like hate hate being in this like ditch <laughs> yeah that's yeah that's really interesting um and that's a good good lead-in because i'd wanted to ask you to describe what your year looks like these days um and I'm curious because you do a lot of other climbing you've done some hard sport climbing at this point i believe you've climbed 514 and I saw recent, you know, some recent Instagram things of you in the in um, in the Vegas area climbing at Potosi, which is couldn't be more different from the vertical walls of El Cap, for instance. It's like dead horizontal limestone cave climbing. What does your year look like, and to what extent do you have like a a grand design to do these other things throughout the year that boost you up to go back? better prepared for a harder objective in Yosemite or is it just, is it important to you to turn that part of your brain off and just enjoy other things and yeah. And and switch it up, I guess. Like, are they connected? Is it part of this grand design or is it, is it totally other, just do other things, enjoy other parts of climbing and explore other parts of climbing? Yeah, I guess the, the structure, like where the structure for my climbing used to stem from was from the jobs that I had. You know, um, in college, I worked, I worked three jobs my, my senior year to save up as much money as I could so that I could, you know, just climb full time after college, which really only lasted about six months. <laughs> it wasn't that much money. Um, and then after that, you know, like I said, I didn't have any like specific career path or anything that I was trying to follow. So I would basically just, I just followed the dirtbag life kind of, and just work seasonal jobs. Um, you know, doing all sorts of things. I don't really need to get into it, but which basically meant I knew that for the the things I cared about the most, which was Yosemite climbing, um, it's best in the fall and in the spring. And so I would basically 
set up, excuse me, I would basically set up my climbing gear to be off in the fall and the spring. So I could go to Yosemite or climb in Tuolumne or the high Sierra. And then I would work during the, the winter and the summer. And I would try to position myself in a place like Bishop for the winter. So I could, you know, boulder and climb at the gorge or uh, Tahoe for the summer. So I could climb at Donner summit, for example. And, um, what kind of jobs, what, what kind of jobs did you find? Well, given that I'm in Bishop at my friend Diane's house, I did a lot of like, uh, I guess, landscaping or like contracting work for her. I mean, Peter paid and Corrine paid me to do some like painting and some lawn mowing and some like building. Um, I worked at the, the Bishop, uh, the Creekside Inn as a laundry attendant like <laughs> providing clean laundry for the housekeepers. I worked at June Mountain as a lifty. Um, what else? Yeah, that's all just kind of in Bishop. I have a lot of friends to thank for giving me work <laughs> when they probably didn't need to just to fuel my climbing addiction. They all knew I was poor as hell. <laughs> um, but my, my most legit job uh, that I ever had was working at the Patagonia Distribution Center in Reno. Okay. And that's the only stint that I ever uh, lived in an apartment for a little bit of time because I've, I've basically been living in my car full time for the past seven years. And, you know, that wears on you after a while. It's hard to like find a comfortable uh, spring or winter and summer scene given it's just so hot or so cold. But yeah, I worked at, I worked at the, uh, the Patagonia Distribution Center, which was like working in the warehouse, seasonal contracts. Um, you know, my, my boss was a climber. He understood my like desire. Like I was basically just working there so I could take off in the spring and, and go to Yosemite and then, and then come back and yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I want to, I'll ask another question and then I want, I would love to hear now that you're a professional climber, how you structure your year now having more freedom. Yeah. Um, but I want to ask you about your, the evolution of your car living because I know you live in a van now and it's a beautifully built out, very comfortable looking van, similar to my own, which I'm, I'm very similar to yours. Yeah. <laughs> grateful for. Yeah. But it sounds like that's relatively new. So what were you living in for those first few years? Yeah. So when I, when I realized that you could live out of a car to save money to go climbing, um, I pulled the, the plug on that as soon as I could, because I, was like wasting so much money on housing in, in San Diego and didn't necessarily like the people I was living with. And so I started doing it early in college. I lived out of my Honda CRV, I think for maybe six months. Um, and then as I saved up money to buy a van, I bought a uh, Ford Econoline, uh, like E250, fully copying Alex Honnold. I was just like following his, his example, um, except mine was like totally beat down and not very nice. And I didn't have that much money to, to build it out, but that was like a huge step for me. And that kept me comfy for the rest of my college years and um, into like my first, I think my first like one or two dirtbagging years, kind of living on the East side and such. Um, but I eventually broke down um, to a point that it didn't make sense to, yeah, to fix it and ended up living in a cave in Yosemite for a little while, um, <laughs> and not really having a car, but then I, I eventually sold the van and was like, oh, I, I guess I need to get a job, like an actual job. And that's when I 
moved in with some friends in Reno and got that job working at uh, Patagonia. And I went all winter without having a car. And then uh, my roommate's parents like sold me their like family minivan that he grew up in. <laughs> and that was my home for like the next four, four years. Wow. Um, as soon as, you know, I would live in that seasonally. And then that was what I lived in my first few years as a pro climber. And ultimately, thankfully gotten to the point now where I'm able to, you know, buy a van and be more comfortable, like, like you are, which, which like, you know, it's so comfy now. It's like hard to imagine going back to anything else. There's no downsizing. <laughs> there, there really isn't. I mean, if you live in a house and you have kids and then they graduate, whatever, you can downsize your house. But if you go from a Honda, right. what did you say what the first car was? The CRV. CRV. A Honda. If you go from a Honda CRV to a minivan to a van you can actually stand up in, I don't think there's any going back down. <laughs> that list. No, you know? I mean, like, like downgrading to a tent. I just like, yeah, I, I can't, I can't imagine it. We're we're both spoiled. I think at this point, um, I do take a lot of comfort in the fact that, like, if all shit ever hit the fan, I could go back to like the simplest of my dirt bagging days, and I could, I could, just, I could live out of a cave in Yosemite at the very worst and be happy <laughs> enough to an extent. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I could rebuild. I could rebuild from there, but <laughs> uh, I probably wouldn't be that happy about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you that's know, great. It, I think that's the value of dirtbagging and like living out of your car for some time. Like you really do learn what is most important and like the, the essential things you need to be, to be happy. Mm-hmm. And of course, I don't want to be a dirt bag forever, you know, I wouldn't consider myself as such anymore. I don't think there's anything wrong with like making upgrades in life, but I'm thankful for the the lessons I learned from the the severe dirt bag days. It's almost like a practice in stoicism, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't yeah. thought of it. I I also felt like it was part of paying your dues, you know? Mm. Like so many people before had had done that and i felt like in order to appreciate you know where they came from or where our sport came from um that i kind of had to play my part in that as well that's why like i've met so many people who are like man i'm waiting to like spend more time on the road i'm just waiting until i can buy a sprinter van and i was like dude what kind of car do you have now like brad gobright lived out of a, a shitty like honda for years you know like it's just it comes back to desire, like how mm. badly do you want it? But also it does help to like see examples of other people doing that and being like, oh, I guess I don't need a Sprinter van. I can live out of my Subaru or, you know, make do with what you have. I've always kind of taken that mentality. And I, I don't necessarily, uh, I don't look down on anybody for, you know, if they have a good job and get into climbing and go straight to the, straight to like the luxury van life, you know, but there's a certain respect for the, you know, that there's who like start in a cave and end up in a house one day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there is. And for people listening, it's amazing what putting a Thule or like a rocket box on top of your shitty little car can do as far as making making it more comfortable to live out of. I lived in a Subaru Outback for not a very long time, but for, for six months full time and just had like a Thule on top. And, uh, that made it that made it totally comfortable that made it totally doable and i had crash pads too like that's another interesting mm, mm-hmm. thing is the the crash pads can kind of be cruxy but now there's so many like roof bags and 
you can put them on the back on a hitch or, you know, there's ways to make it happen for sure. Yeah, definitely. You just got to think outside the box sometimes. Having said all that, um, now that you do live in a beautiful, comfortable van, what are some things that you, this is like van life tips, you know, what are some things that you use every day or that you're so glad that you have that you can't imagine not having in your van? Yeah, I had a feeling you were maybe going to ask for some van life tip. And so I came, I came prepared. I think this is going to be one that hasn't been shared, but it's pee bottle. It's pee bottle beta. <laughs> What's your beta? Um, I, I think it mainly just applies to guys. I'm not sure if I have any beta for the women, but like, have you ever just walked into or, you know, seen somebody hanging out at their van and they just have their clear, like yellow foamy piss jug, just like sitting out in the open. Yes, disgusting. And you're like, dude, that's, that's gnarly. Like you can't be doing that. My friend, uh, my friend Tom Chapin taught me this, but it's just to have a, uh, like a laundry detergent oh. bottle. That's a good particularly one. one. Particularly one that isn't see-through. Yeah. Uh, that would defeat the purpose, but it's got a nice handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it generally smells good. Uh, people, if they see it, they just think it's laundry detergent. They don't think it's pee. Um, but then you can clean it out and put a little bit of laundry detergent back in there, swish it around, and then it just makes it not smell like piss all the time. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. I do a similar thing, but I have always used an orange juice bottle, like a white opaque orange juice bottle. And the citrus, oh, okay. yeah. citrus kind of helps cut the smell. But I think laundry, that might be the upgrade for me. Laundry detergent might even be the next Do you have step. one of the big Tropicana ones that like actually has a handle? Yeah. Or is it one of the big like, okay, yeah, totally. I think that's key. It's like you want to have a gal. handle. You don't want to like accidentally drop your pee jug. <laughs> when you're Dude, <laughs> never drop the pee jug. That is like rule number one of van lifing. Yeah, that would just be, I've, I've never done it, knock on wood. That would just be nope. a disaster. What is the uh, <laughs> the most awkward place you have had to dump your pee bottle in an emergency? Oof. I mean, I'm pretty shameless when it comes to that. <laughs> um, I just try to do it quick so people have enough time to consider what it is I'm actually dumping out. But I mean, just, yeah, I've dumped it out like in gas stations and things. This is going to make me sound gross. <laughs> <laughs> I think most sure people that I have a good answer. To that. I, I mean, I, I'm on your same page. I've definitely done like grocery store parking lots, um, friends' driveways. Although I won't say which which friends and which driveways. Yeah. But yeah, sometimes Ideally in some kind of dirt or grass, right? Not yeah. on pavement. I won't do that. Yeah. Yeah. In a bush. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes even just bring it straight into like a a bathroom and just dump it down the toilet. That's like the real pro move that's a wow I've, I've, i don't think i've ever actually dumped my pee bottle into a toilet yeah <laughs> <laughs> seems like a weird thing to do right i think i learned that from mark actually as like a courtesy if you do have the the like option that's great yeah it's really smart yeah <laughs> so, so so simple <laughs> you put the pee in the toilet where it belongs um what else as far as van life tips anything else come to mind Okay, two quick ones, and then I want to bring it around to number two, um, now that we've talked about P. But, uh, you know, in the, this really only applies to, like, the ProMasters and the Sprinter vans that have, like, What are you raised... in? What, what is your van? I'm in a ProMaster, same as you. Okay, great. But you know how in ProMasters and Sprinters and maybe Transits, they all have, like, raised cabs? Yeah. Like, you know, there's, like, that six-inch riser that puts it above 
the floor. So if you have a swivel chair that rotates back into like your living room, your feet just end up dangling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so I have a little like foldable stool. Dude, I have that that? exact stool. Are you kidding me? Look at this. Oh, nice. Look at this. Hell yeah. Beta. Do you see mine? It's got the little white dots on top. Yep. Honestly, that little thing, like if I have a guest and I'm like, here, sit in like the, the captain's chair and then I slide the stool under them, they're like, ooh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yes. simply just not having to like dangle your legs is so nice. Um, so that's like a, a nice little comfort tip for hanging out in the in the front seat. That stool is useful for other reasons too. I'll do like some of my stretches with it, you know, like if I'm doing hmm. Jefferson curls or something, it's nice to be able to stand on something. Yeah. Yeah. Occasionally, I'll put it outside yeah, as like a step into the van or something. I guess the only other one that people, this is more for people who are perhaps considering building out a van and like features to include. I think it's really nice to have like a specific trash can like area. Yeah. You know, just like your pee bottle. You don't want to have like some trash bag hanging off like the head of your driver's you know, seat like dangling down in the back and looking all gross and smelly. Like mm-hmm. I, I made sure to design, like I just, I basically just have a pullout trash can just like you would have in like a normal kitchen. That's, yeah, that's great. Which seems like a lot of space to sacrifice, but it's really nice to have a designated spot for that. Um, yeah, this, I guess this isn't necessarily beta, but I asked my friend this the other day, you know, people ask all the time, like, oh, do you have a bathroom in there? And generally they mean like, do you have a toilet, right? Do you have a toilet in your van? No. Yeah. Because most of the time you just like, you just have public restrooms or friends' houses or yeah. you go dig a hole in the desert or whatever. Totally. I have an, I have an emergency bucket, like a two gallon bucket that I can nice. line with a trash bag, worst case scenario. Yeah. Which I have or like had. A, or like a wag bag, right? Yeah. I have definitely had yeah. to do that, but, um, but yeah, I don't do it often. Maybe because of my big wall climbing experience, I'm like more comfortable using wag bags than most people, but I always have a stash of wag bags in the van in case, oh, that's like, yeah, like you just said, worst case scenario, if you like really have to like do business inside your van. Um, so when people ask me like, oh, do you have a toilet? I'm like, no, but I got some wag bags just in case. And they're like, oh, like, where do you use that? And I'm like, just on the living room floor, like right in the center of the van, where else do you think? And they're like, that's gross. And I'm like, how is that any different from like pulling out some toilet that you also poop into in the same space? That you I then just don't have see to, it as any difference. Yeah, that you then have to store. Like I, I don't, that's what I can't get. Yeah, and, or, then, yeah. and then clean out. And right? then clean out like, every time immediately, you use it. You can immediately throw away a wag bag. So yeah, maybe, maybe that's beta for some people. It's just like, don't be afraid to use a wag bag if you really have to. And maybe don't feel the need to waste space and put in a huge like composting toilet and they just sound like a pain. So, <laughs> I think that's all the van life bit I have. So I don't know if you know this about me. I have, I have, um, this is my great reveal. I've said this before. I think I told Hans this on our podcast, but I have never been to Yosemite. I have zero big wall mm-hmm. experiencing experience. I've done some, I don't know, six to eight pitch Alpine routes and the enchantments and things like that. I have never had to shit on the side of a wall and that intimidates me a lot. I'm Hmm. I'm sure it's, you know, you just do it, you get over it. Everyone does it, whatever. Um, Do you have any, do you have any funny or, or um, unfortunate (laughs) wall side pooping stories? Oh dude, so many, (laughs) so many, you know, 
when you try to go fast and light, when you try to go fast and light and when you tend to do, you know, longer and longer routes, it's inevitable. You're going to end up having to poop up there at some point. Oh man, I have a few good ones. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is, uh, on, uh, the Sentinel with my friend Bill, uh, which he loves to bring this up and remind me we were climbing this route called the Chenard Herbert. Uh, and I think it was like, I think it was right after I had first climbed the free rider and I was like pretty wrecked. And I remember being like feeling kind of ill afterwards, just from like the whole experience. And this is um, multi-day ascent. Yeah. Yeah. So this is like a f- the week after that or something. Um, it was really hot and we went climbing and I was feeling ill and I was like halfway up this pitch and was like, had kind of that internal clock go off where you're like, oh God, I have 30 seconds before I poop my pants <laughs> kind of thing. And I just like placed a piece right where I was. I was like, Bill, lower, lower, lower. <laughs> and I kind of like swung off route to this like little ledge. It wasn't like a ledge that I could just take off my harness and like be comfy. I had to like, I like put my arms through the harness and like drop my pants and did my business that's what i call a code red is when like that's the (laughs) the worst you have to do you know my partners generally know i'm like code red code red (laughs) it means you're having to dump take a dump uh very unexpectedly and you're not prepared to deal with the consequences (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i unfortunately had to like use my underwear as to wipe and you know stuff that in a crack thankfully it's i'm not that proud of that it's off route so it's hopefully never going to be going to be found but um (laughs) right yeah that that's one um i learned this from honald (laughs) actually this is a this is a big wall pooping technique but it's called shit pudding have you heard of that i actually have heard of shit pudding yeah you like Mm. you shit on like a shingle of rock and just huck it off the cliff yeah yeah (laughs) and uh, on roots like on roots like the salathate and the nose. And of course, I'm never necessarily advising people just like chuck rocks off of cliffs where there might be people down below. You certainly have want to consider that. But uh, at certain times of day, like early in the morning, you know, you know that there's not going to be anybody down there. And, um, yeah, you'd be surprised how many ledges on Ocap have like tons of rocks on them. Mm. And so like Alex proudly says like during his you know, free solo, like working on the free rider days, there's this one ledge, um, the hollow flake ledge. He's like, oh yeah, like throughout my time every day, I would just shit put off of there. And, you know, by the end of the season, like the ledge is pretty cleaned up with all these rocks and <laughs> <laughs> now it's all nice. So <laughs> he's like, yeah, don't be afraid to just throw an extra rock up there. Next time you have to poop, it'll make it better for everybody. I'm like, not if my rock with poop ends up killing somebody at the base. And then I have to live with that fact the rest of my life. <laughs> So I have never actually done that. I'm not willing to take that risk, but <laughs> it is an option. Yeah. Perhaps my my best poop story comes with uh, Brad Gobright um, on the Salafe. Um, I jugged for, I supported Brad when he freed the Salafe in a day, I think in 2017, 2018, something like that. Um, and Brad was a prankster and he would prank me all the time like not always in ways that were like really funny, you know, like he loved to pretend that the sport crag, like that he was dropping you, you know, when like lowering off of a route, which is, I'd advise nobody to do that. It'll make your partner not trust you ever. Um, <laughs> um, but he would love to do that and he'd have a knot and it'd be like, Oh, ha ha ha. See, it's fine. And um, that's just one example, but yeah, he would, he would 
prank me all the time. And the only time I ever got him back was when we were jugging or when I was supporting him on the South Day. We were about halfway up um, out of the alcove on El Cap Spire. And there may be some guys listening to this that are going to know what I'm talking about. Um, Brad ended up, we got, we were on top of El Cap Spire and he's like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta take a dump. And I'm like, okay, like, what do you want me to do? He's like, oh, just like feed me out some slack. I'm going to walk to the edge of the tower and, and just go off the side of side of the tower, you know? And so I'm like at the belay, I give him some slack and he's, he's essentially like hanging on the rope, like on my weight while he's like doing his business, you know? And oh boy, what a vulnerable position to be in, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I, I knew I was like, oh, this is my moment. And so I like just gave him a little like jerk on the Grigri that made him go back like, <laughs> like he was falling <laughs> while he was taking a dump. And boy, that was one of the proudest moments of my life. <laughs> It was the only time I ever ever got a good prank on Brad. He's not he's not too pleased. <laughs> um, but I mentioned we passed these guys in the alcove who were sleeping, and yeah, Brad. I don't think he did a very good job with aiming, and he basically oh, no. just like s- streaked down the wall. And these guys were camped there, and they yeah, they could smell it the rest of their their time. Oh <laughs> no, that spot. But uh, you know, uh, do what you got to do. Uh, El Cap smells like piss and poop everybody let's just put it out there Mm. unfortunately (laughs) so those are i mean just to be clear we should probably do like a you know a public service announcement here and just state for Mm -hmm. the record like these are just code reds right these are emergencies what are the best practices up there as far as waste disposal um almost always is a wag bag and packing it out gotcha Um, which i've even which i've even done on my on my like in a day of sense you know knowing that you're starting at like 10 p.m. or midnight, you know, you're not going to go till in the morning. So I even had, yeah, I'll, I'll generally pack a, a wag bag that unfortunately my partner or whoever's supporting me ends up having to like carry in the bag in their pack or something, you know, mm-hmm. or uh, if I find, end up passing like a wall party, like I did this to my friend Aaron, I found his stuff stashed in in the alcove halfway up the free rider. And I was like, Hey, I put a present in your YouTube or something, you know, <laughs> and they ended up carrying it off for me kind of thing. It's nice. teamwork. But yeah. <laughs> wag bags are, are your, are your best friend up there. Gotcha. I wanted to ask you for your perspective on in a day free climbing on El Cap. Because yeah. I've had a couple conversations about this on the show, and I don't have a perspective on just how different it is. You know, I I can kind of try to imagine it, but I would just love to hear your thoughts. Because, of course, I interviewed Emily Harrington when she was trying to free Golden Gate in a day, and I heard her perspective on it. And I talked to John Glassberg about it, and he really mm-hmm. helped me um, just understand how truly different of a challenge it is, and and how much harder it is maybe a good way to tackle this is to talk about your evolution as a climber in Yosemite. How much did you have to level up from being able to free climb Golden Gate or free rider to then being able to do one of those or, or both of those routes in a day? Boy, where to start? I think the biggest thing that people don't consider when looking at, you know, an accomplishment like free climbing El Cap in a day is the importance of movement efficiency and 
being good at climbing quote easy terrain because you know on the topo if you just look at the topo for those routes you're like oh cool. free rider has one 513 pitch and like a few pitches of 512 and it's mostly 510 and 511 and same with golden golden gate you're like oh it has four or three 513 pitches a few 512s and then, yeah same thing a bunch of 510 and 511 um but i think what maybe a sport climber looking at that might not understand is that in the same way that they're able to ramble a 510 sport route at like the red or something they're not going to be able to ramble like you're not able to ramble 510 yosemite cracks or granite slabs in the same way like they take so much more attention there's so much more subtlety and insecurity and burliness on a lot of them that um that that stuff taxes you way more than you think it would and so even the easy climbing demands like serious respect in terms of just how physical um it can be um so yeah i don't think that is to be is to be underestimated is you have to be able to to climb quote easy terrain um but very efficiently and very quickly and then in the same way that you might you know you could look at like a um a red point sport project in the same way like okay this is the crux this is the distinct crux and everything else above and below is kind of a little bit more rambly so i can kind of like climb that more flowy and intuitive and then you have to like really turn it on at the crux so i guess that's the other thing is like being able to get into you know fight mode or aggressive bouldering or powerful mode um on like the on the cruxes and then and then ramp it back down kind mm. of to like the the all day conservative like very efficient uh, of mode of climbing. Mm -hmm. um, those are the, those are the first things that come to mind. How big of a gap in time was there between free climbing those routes and doing them in a day? Yeah, I've only done two routes on OCAP um, wall style. Um, I started on free rider and then <clears throat> and then I did Golden Gate. And the main reason I've only done those two is because I got caught up trying to free both of them in a day in between. So basically a year apart i did the free rider the next year i did it in a day i did golden gate the next year i did it in a day after that okay and i kind of i kind of like that style because it is really fun to go ground up on on a route you know um and spend multiple days on it um just getting the full experience and sending or not sending whatever um but then you know looking at the same route but in a completely different with a completely different challenge and then trying to do the same amount of climbing in a single day. It seems crazy at first. You're like, how does that, how does that make sense? You know, mm. how does a route that took me six days to do it the first time, how can I conceivably imagine doing that in under 24 hours? But that's kind of the nature of big wall climbing, you know, is like, as soon as you, as soon as you bring a portal edge and extra water and food and, you know, your, your time, your time adds up. Like, as soon as you start bringing all the extra stuff, you're just like, oh, all of a sudden your ascent could have gone from like 18 hours to three days. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because this is the, the systems that you use to climb these walls totally changes when you bring all that extra gear. Mm -hmm. But when you do kind of not necessarily look at El Cap as a big wall anymore, but like, okay, I'm just going to do a really long free climb right now. And you kind of, you don't think about it in the same exact way. That's when the possibilities open up and you're able to just like, go out and do this certain amount of rock climbing and periodically like passing 
Um, like, oh, this is where I slept on day one. And now, oh, this is where I slept on day two. And you're like passing by them all in a single day. And that's like totally crazy to, <laughs> to you know, to see, to see that progression. But it's, yeah, it's just because you're of your ability to one, knowing the terrain, for example, um, maybe being better, more efficient, stronger, having a good partner, all that stuff. But, um, mainly it's just, yeah, not caring, not caring as much stuff. Mm. Yeah. That must feel so satisfying. Dude, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm not going to go so far to say that one is better than the other because, you know, with, with, uh, in a day of sense, there is somewhat of a like need for speed, you know, just because you can't just kind of like lollygag around and expect to send within 24 hours. You got to like climb with intention, which means that there's not always a, a downtime or you don't get the same level of enjoyment of like waking up halfway up El Cap and watching the sunrise come over, you know, and sweep across the wall and then spend the night up there. You know, you don't enjoy those same little moments. It's more like, it's more like the overall experience of climbing a route like that in a day, um, you know, that you, that you cherish rather than like the little moments here and there from a multi-day ascent that make it, that make it memorable, but it is a really fun challenge. I mean, I haven't found anything else that inspires, inspires me or challenges me as much as like trying to do long free routes in a, you know, a constrained period of time in a single mm. day, just because it, it forces you to, it, I mean, it just demands all of the things that you've learned as a climber and applying them, you know, in one go, essentially, mm -hmm. like all the things I've learned from, from big ball climbing and speed climbing and multi-pitch and crack climbing and slab and face and bouldering. It just compiles it all into this one challenge that evolves throughout the day from one style to another, from one hard pitch to an easy pitch, you know, um, from, you know, climbing in the morning to the heat of the sun to the, the end of the day and the night again. Like it's just this really big complex challenge that just pushes me more than anything else has. And it, yeah, it's cool. It, it really shows you like what you're capable of to some mm, extent. That's awesome. You no, know? that's awesome. I was going to ask that those two achievements feel like the things you're proudest of. Um, I think so. Perhaps free rider, not so much. I mean, I'm proud of that in just, you know, it being my first, um, but it wasn't as physically hard as I thought it was going to be. It was more like mentally hard. You know, it was really hard to wrap my head around like the idea of being able to free climb just a route on El Cap in a day. You know, it was, it took me a while to like conceptualize that I can free climb El Cap at all, but then being able to do it in a day, was like a big mental, mental leap. Um, but after I kind of came over that hurdle, that's why Golden Gate presented itself. So, um, perfectly, um, also following Emily's example, she was already up there working on it and kind of presented the idea with me, but I knew like, okay, if I was to try that right now, I would certainly get shut down on like the last two five thirteen pitches. I was like, I know I could confidently climb up to that point and then I would fall apart. Mm. And so I knew that it was going to be more of a physical challenge. Um, and so that's why, that's why Golden Gate appealed, um, appealed to me. And it's a unique route because there's four crux pitches and each one is going to be easier or harder to different people based on their, um, their skill sets. And unfortunately the last two, which a lot of people find easier for some reason, maybe because they are like actually stronger, have more power, um, 
and I just, I just don't, I'm more of a technical climber. Um, those were like the crux for me. Um, so they're also like the hardest, but they're also the last ones. And, mm. you know, those are, those are hard for me to like wrap my head around being able to do. Um, but okay. Sorry. Your question. I just rambled. Your question was, are those the most things I'm the most proud of? And I don't think so. I think, um, actually what I did last, last season, um, the triple crown, uh, the link up was perhaps what I'm most proud of because at the end of the day, I think like there's probably a lot more people who could free climb golden gate in a day or other hard routes on OCAP. Like there's just so many strong climbers out there these days. And, you know, so many Europeans who have done like similar things of similar difficulty elsewhere, but the triple crown, the, like the speed climbing link up game is totally different. And I just, I don't know. I don't think there are quite as many people with that, with that same skill set. Um, and for, for people listening, there's that film, I think it's Honold 3.0 where he, yes. he does it with Tommy and then he does it solo. And it um, was that the same style like this? I mean, I assume you're with a partner, but is it just this by any means climbing? Just totally. whatever it takes to get um, up the thing? Is it essentially the same, the same exact way that, you know, people climb the nose in a day, you know, um, you're not climbing it entirely free. You're not climbing it entirely aid. It's generally a mixture of the two. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, commonly just kind of speed climbing, you know, by any means necessary. Um, but just stacking one route or one wall on top of the, on top of the other. Who did you do it with? Uh, Scott Bennett, okay. um, good friend of mine. Yeah. He's kind of an under, uh, I don't want to say underdog, but what's the other, uh, undercover kind of, kind of crusher. Nice. More. He's, I mean, he, you know, he grew up climbing in Washington also has a bunch of speed records and in, in the mountains and the cascades and things. Um, he's climbed three L cap routes in a day with Brad Gobright. Um, Damn. you know, it's done big ascents in, in, uh, in Patagonia. Yeah. He's, he's like an endurance Alpine, you know, big wall climbing maniac he's awesome because <laughs> that's 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 also the crux man for that those kinds of objectives there are very few people like i said who i think are are capable um like current currently and the ones that are have already done it mm. so it was hard for me to find a partner for that for a long time um because yeah it's people who just one aren't capable or aren't interested or if they are they've done it or they're dead now and don't want to do it again so mm. you know that's it's hard to it's hard to find people for that those kinds of objectives. What appealed to you about that objective? Honestly, the the history for one, um, there's a big history of the evolution of uh, of link ups in Yosemite or just in a day climbs. You know, seeing how much you can do in 24 hours. And yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Honol 3.0. That's a great like representation of of kind of what I'm talking about. Um, but also just the absurd idea of like climbing the three biggest walls in Yosemite in a day and just doing that much insane, uh, you know, that absurd amount of awesome climbing and also just getting to experience three different walls and three very different parts of the valley. It's like mm. pretty rad idea, but it definitely stemmed from like climbing the nose in a day, you know, for my first time, but also in history, you know, when the stone masters climbed that for the first time in the seventies to, uh, Peter Croft and John Backer climbing the nose and half dome in a day, um, in the eighties. And then 
you know, and that be becoming the famous double, you know, the first time two grade six walls had ever been climbed in a day and El Cap and Half Dome being like the, the most famous big walls ever. And that evolved into Peter and Dave doing uh, two El Cap routes in a day. They did the nose and the south A um, in a single day. And that was like the first time that had that, that had been done. And then it wasn't until, you know, the early 2000s that Dean Potter and Timmy O'Neill kind of took it a step further and, and added Mount Watkins, which is lesser known, but still equally proud um, and big um, as the other two, you know, to kind of add one more big wall on onto the mix, which um, talking to Peter about it afterwards, um, I guess he and Dave had thought about, like they each went, they climbed um, Mount Watkins together, considering like, you know, maybe we'll uh, add that in after El Cap and Half Dome, but neither of them, I don't think they had a very good experience on the route and weren't as impressed with it. And so they didn't think it was like worthy to go back to, hmm. but they certainly kind of put that idea out there. They had conceptualized it. And then it wasn't until many years later that Dean and Timmy actually made it happen. Did Dean and Timmy do the triple or did they combine El Cap with Watkins? No, they, they did the first, the first triple crown ever Got um, it. where they climbed. I think they climbed half dome first then they did mount watkins and they ended on ended on el cap are there unspoken yeah. rules with this stuff like is it implied that you would climb the nose and like the northwest face of half dome or are there specific routes or is it just like climb these oh totally okay no you're that's a good that's a good question it is totally implied that you're climbing the nose of el cap um the regular northwest face of half dome and the south face of mount watkins okay uh, the only exception is if you're free climbing the triple, which only Alex and Tommy have done. And it unfortunately doesn't like, it doesn't go right now because half dome fell off and doesn't go free anymore. Yeah. Um, How do you, I was going to ask that. Um, Cause of course I, yeah. I don't know about this kind of stuff. Um, sure. It, it, wh what happened after, I mean, I know that half dome fell off. I know a big chunk of the rock, fell off yeah. maybe just describe that and how do people aid climb around that now did someone add a bolt ladder like what, what's the deal with that right now yeah that's basically it as uh this big slab of rock that made up this chimney that connected kind of like one ledge crack system into another um that you kind of just like wander across pretty easily um as soon as that fell it just left this huge blank open section of rock that there's really nothing kind of around so hmm. yeah there's just a bolt ladder now Got it. Okay. And that makes it sound simple. It's a little more complicated. Um, but essentially that's, that's all it is. Okay. But I was going to say the only exception is if you're free climbing, like when Alex and Tommy free climbed the triple, they obviously didn't each free the nose and then go and free climb the other routes. I think that'd be, that'd be like totally next level, maybe for next generation, but they, they climbed the free rider. Um, they're like El Cap route because it's the easier one to free. And then, yeah, did the other two routes. The only other kind of rules, I guess, associated with this kind of thing is, you know, just keeping it within the 24-hour period, I guess. Um, whether that's, you know, from, from midnight to midnight or, you know, some just arbitrary 24-hour window, like you start mm -hmm. at 10 and end at whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just that a, kind of thing. That's the climbing. The that's the rules to the climbing game. Yeah, this specific yeah. climbing game. What to you? I'm curious how goal oriented you are with your climbing, and if you have like a guiding light that you're trying to push towards. 
What is like the most badass thing you can imagine doing in Yosemite? Is there something that really like lights your fire or are you just, you know, step by step, just taking whatever next objective presents itself to you and just going, going through them one at a time? Yeah, I guess that kind of brings us back to the question of like how I structure my years now that I'm don't have to work seasonally. Um, but the things that inspire me most are things like free climbing El Cap in a day, you know, not only is it long, but it's also hard. I'm not as satisfied as just going and climbing, you know, a route of the same length, but at five, nine difficulty, you know, I like having that, that free climbing challenge on top of the, on top of the endurance challenge, um, as well. And so, yeah, I really got to start thinking more outside the box because there's a lot more to climbing than Yosemite, but, um, that's kind of been my only focus for a long, for a long time. So it's hard for me to think outside of those parameters, but honestly, the biggest thing I could think about is, uh, is free climbing the triple. I think that would be like the coolest thing ever. Mm. Cause it's one thing to climb at speed style where, you know, we're maybe freeing up to like 5.11 and 5.12, but when you're just climbing in whatever way is most efficient, you just don't end up climbing that hard. It's more just about like the endurance and doing it all. Um, but the idea of like doing that again, but actually free climbing would be insanely awesome. <laughs> but we need to figure out how to free half dome again. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise it would be like 513 A0. It just wouldn't be cool. Mm. It would be as cool. Mm -hmm. Are there other free routes on half dome? Uh, there are. You could free the direct northwest face that... I think Tommy did. It would go at 514. It'd be hard. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and gross. I don't think it's been climbed. It's probably really dirty, but gotcha. it's like, I suppose if that's what it takes, <laughs> just like rise to the challenge and become really burly so that you could send that. <laughs> Got you. Got but you. I, just, I, just, I just don't see that happening for myself. Um, I wanted to ask you about one of the other notes I have in front of me. So this goes back to big wall preparedness and learning how to climb in Yosemite. Tell me about the classroom analogy. What is the classroom oh, analogy? Yeah. Um, I'm glad you're bringing that back up. I meant to mention that earlier. Um, should I say quickly how I structure my years though? Yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I forgot. I forgot to mention that. Um, people like to ask all the time, you know, what my, what my goals are and generally speaking, but also sometimes like strictly Yosemite speaking, um, and essentially, I plan my year around Yosemite in the fall and the spring. And I consider both of those like my Super Bowl seasons, you know, <laughs> where like everything else I do in between that time is really like preparation just to go back to Yosemite. But of course, it's also just diversifying and going new places and having fun climbing on other things and different styles. But it's generally with the intention of like, all right, I just had a Yosemite season. Now I'm trying to like wind down and recharge. But then after enough of that time passes and I can start to see Yosemite on the horizon again, it's like, okay, I'm climbing to like get ready to go back to Yosemite. So like, um, you know, people were asking me what my goals were in Vegas this, this winter. And like, you know, I'm like, ah, oh, nothing. I really care about that much. It's all really just like training for the, the big goals that I do care about back in the Valley. Um, so that's where I'm at now. Okay. Anyways, yeah. You know, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, do you have, I know you're very methodical. Like, is, is it any more 
detailed than that? Are you trying to like pick routes that tackle a specific weakness of yours to try to build that up or, um, or is it just whatever? I got three months to kill. I'm just going to go climbing and find some stuff to do. No, it's definitely more specific at this point. Um, for a while, I think following the traditional path, you know, so there's so much more, um, early on, I think you can get a long ways by just climbing, you know, cause so much of climbing is such a skill, a skill sport, especially, uh, traditional climbing that, you know, there's a little more emphasis on technique and movement efficiency than there is on actual strength. And so I felt like I got pretty far just using the, you know, I'm just going to get better by climbing approach, um, to eventually plateauing and being like, okay, if I want to continue to climb the things that I'm most inspired by, I'm going to have to consider a different approach and, you know, start working my weaknesses in like a more targeted way, which was, which has, yeah, turned into more bouldering and sport climbing and, um, and actually training. This is like kind of my first year dabbling in training, which I actually kind of, you know, I told how, told you how Peter Croft really introduced me to sport climbing and showed me how fun and beneficial that it, it could be. And as well as Alex really reminded me of that the first time I did the El Cap Half Dome link up, I climbed it with Alex. And by the end, he, he told me like the biggest takeaway from the day, he's like, you know, sport climbing makes all the big adventures like this easier. Hmm. And it took me a few years to appreciate that. It was really after, you know, essentially sport climbing for like an entire year before, you know, doing Golden Gate and seeing like, okay, like that, that worked. But then the following season doing the triple, like in places where on the nose, for example, like maybe the last bolt ladder where you're just like freaking powering through this like steep overhanging bolts, just like pulling on quick draws and just like very bicepy, you know, like normally I would just have like no power or I would be getting pumped and I'd have to like clip in and hang more often. I was able to just like free climb so much more of the nose because I just had so much more like power and burliness because of all the sport climbing. And mm. then I was like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> Alex was 100% right. And that's why by the end of the, uh, you know, I'd never even conceived of like the possibility of free climbing the trip wall. But then actually having actually done it now with the sport climbing, you know, uh, background I have at this point, which still isn't much, I was like, oh, I could see it. Like it, it wouldn't be that much harder. I don't think. Wow. Um, That's cool. So, so now people ask, I think people assume when they're like, oh, so how do you train for these, like these big endurance goals? And I'm like, they think that I'm going to, that I go out and just climb 30 pitches or something or do a bunch of mileage. And I'm like, no, I really just sport climbing and climb power because I think of the one endurance just comes fairly naturally to me. But I think it's also just because of the, the like huge base that I built early on strictly just climbing and not doing any of the training stuff yeah yeah that makes sense yeah i could pretty pretty confidently just go to yosemite essentially at any point and like climb the nose and have it not be that that big of a thing mm -hmm. yeah you've got that base yeah yeah <clears throat> i um, do not have the bouldering and the, the power so i really <laughs> really have to hammer in on that and it's freaking hard yeah yeah how much do you like it now like do you have any goals within those facets of climbing for their own sake at this point? Yeah. Uh, I, I really aspire to be well-rounded, you know, 
like you mentioned Tommy, or I think you mentioned Alex and Tommy's another good example, Josh Wharton, even I, mm. I really enjoyed your conversation with him, you know, people who have the thing that they're good at, but they're certainly not slouches in any other area. Um, because I really do like the diversity and think it does bring a lot of value, but it's also just very fun. And so, yeah, I don't think I'm going to, you know, like the only reason I'm in the position I am now is because of Yosemite kind of climbing. And it's not because I'm like a world-class boulder or a sport climber. I'm like super freaking average in that respect, but you know, I go out there and try my best. And, um, and so I do have goals in that, you know, 514 was a goal. I kind of, hit it technically by the guidebook, but I don't necessarily feel like I hit it for myself yet. So that's still, that's still a goal. Um, climbing at Potosi, you know, I've climbed a lot of 513s at this point, but haven't really done any like straight up roof climbs. I've done like steeper climbs, but there's this classic 13A there that I'm sure you would love. Anybody would like it, I'm sure. Um, but that was like a big goal. You know, I was like, well, I've climbed from slab and 513 slab. And now I want to like do the most horizontal thing I can find. And <laughs> That was a that was a goal. I was happy to to take this winter, but bouldering is uh you know still haven't hit V ten. I like basic basic number goals kind of um, that aren't super interesting, but you know milestones. Uh, but yeah, I generally have like an idea of routes attached. Like I'd love to do Thriller in Yosemite as my first V ten. Mm. That would be oh amazing. that would be sick. That's, a, that's, that's awesome. a classic historic one, you know. Yeah. Well, man, I um maybe you'll do it this spring, but I'm I'm going to say this on the podcast. Maybe it'll commit me. But I had a conversation with Tom Herbert the other day. Tom Herbert. Oh, I, I meant to bring that up. Yeah, oh, really? I talked to him last night. Yeah, he told me about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for people listening, there's Tom Herbert in the UK who I've had on the podcast. This is the other Tom Herbert in Yosemite, who's done a lot of climbing in Yosemite in, in this year. As, but yeah, he basically. I guess invited me out, just encouraged me to come out and made it sound really appealing to come out to the Valley. And I've been thinking about it for a long time and I'm very strongly considering a bouldering trip to the Valley, October, November. And then of course, like mixing in oh, some man. of the, some of the longer experiences while I'm there. But uh, yeah, we should try Thriller in the fall. Dude, you totally, you totally should. I mean, the Yosemite bouldering is amazing. It can be really finicky and weird, but knowing that you've climbed a lot in Leavenworth, I imagine mm. it's probably not that similar or not that different. So, yeah, I mean, I advise anybody who's maybe even if they're not interested in big wall climbing that, yeah, a bouldering trip there could be just as awesome and memorable. So, yeah, I'd be psyched to go boulder. Um, but dude, I'm so glad you mentioned Tom. He's so he's such a good like steward of Yosemite and the fact that he invited you out to you know, for your first experience. Um, Sounds too good to pass up, I think. Yeah. 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 I met him on, I met him on Astroman my first time climbing that route, like fresh out of college, I think. And yeah, befriended him up there. And I mean, I remember afterward, he was like cheering me on the whole time and he offered to buy me dinner afterwards and invited me up to like the cabin to hang with him and his friends and took me climbing into all and he's been like, I mean, he's a total, he's a total dad, but he's a good, <laughs> he's a great mentor and, and friend and fun person to, to climb and hang out with and really cares about kind of what we chatted about earlier, like, you know, giving back something good to Yosemite and mm. paying it forward. So I, I really appreciate him for that. That's awesome. Yeah. 
And thanks for sharing all that about your sport climbing and bouldering goals too. Cause it's interesting. Like I can imagine that there's some kids sitting somewhere driving, listening to this, thinking like, holy shit, this guy has done all that in Yosemite and he hasn't climbed V10. You know, I've climbed V10, yeah. like some 18 year old kid, I've climbed V10, huh? Maybe I could go do those things. And hopefully some seeds are being planted through this conversation. Um, and and you've put the time in clearly, but it's just to your earlier point, like you, you know, you don't have to just sit in the gym and level up and level up or do all these other trad climbs before you're ready. You can just go to Yosemite yeah. and start building the, the experience. Yeah. If I was to, I think that's the advice I would give to any aspiring, like big wall or traditional climber is to, you know, the strength is going to be important to some extent, but it's not necessarily as valuable as the skill in the the mileage early on. Mm. And so, whereas I kind of fully went down just the traditional path, I think my advice would do be like somewhere in between, you know, don't overemphasize the training too much, don't, but don't also don't overemphasize just the, the mileage, try and strike a balance in between and, mm. and yeah, come out the other end, a more well-rounded climber. But like, whereas at the time I wasn't into training, you know, and when people told me like, Oh, Jordan, you should go train. I was just like, no, nah, I don't want to. So if, if you, if that's not something you want to do, like just go out and do what you're most interested in and what you're most passionate about. Yeah. And you'll probably come around <laughs> like I have where, you know, I wasn't really into the sport aspects of climbing early on. I like totally am now on like, Oh full, yeah. You know, yeah. Now that it's like my career, I love going full athlete mode and being really like dialed on all the the training and and things but i needed a significant break from it for a while and get my adventure fixed Mm. as far as thinking of yourself as an athlete what are some things that have become important to you that are peripheral to rock climbing you know whether that's certain elements of your training or lifestyle diet other things what are what are a few of the key things that feel most important to be consistent with for you yeah um I've gotten a lot more intentional about my, my diet and my sleep, um, which, you know, when you're living in a, a shitty car or in a cave and don't have much money, it's like, those are kind of the first things to go out the door, right? It's like comfort of your living or sleeping arrangement and then the quality of the food that you're putting in. But that's kind of, that's kind of been like the funny thing about the dirtbag Yosemite culture is that it oftentimes like a lot of the most badass ascents are coming from, you know, totally under fueled and like poorly rested dirtbag individuals. Yeah. And dudes like, were eating cat food and stuff like, yeah, just crazy. Totally. Cat food and saltines. Like, Man, imagine what you could do with like a more modern, like sport, like ath- athletic approach, you know, which I, I, I had total insight into playing, playing soccer, you mm. know, having like a nutritionist and a, a PT and a strength and conditioning coach and like this whole team of people basically supporting you to be your best self. And it's kind of an interesting thing in climbing, unless you're like on a competition team or, or something like that. Um, we're all really just like self-coached individuals and we have to do all this stuff ourselves. And that was a big goal of mine. This, this last year is to kind of lay that foundation for myself as more you know, knowing that I wanted to take more of like an athletic approach and see what I could do is, you know, I hired Katie Lambert as like a nutritionist of sorts that I work with 
throughout the year to get meal plans for the different kinds of climbing I'm doing or um, hiring my friend Simon Moore from Bishop, whom you might know. Um, he lives in Ireland now, but he's my, he's my like, you know, coach, like training coach, I guess, um, to buying the van and having a, you know, a home that I can sleep more comfortably in and cook good food in and all that stuff. So those have been, those have been like the biggest changes, uh, changes for me. Oh, and then even like that I've been in Vegas is working. Like I hired Alex as a, um, like PT massage therapist, uh, Pat, like once a week to kind of like get some, some body work done, mm. you know, all, all the little things that make a big difference, um, when you're trying to, trying to climb full time and like demanding, we, you know, I've heard you mention on the podcast a lot, but like, it's the one weird thing about climbing is we're all just like trying to send all the time. Yeah. And I certainly know from playing other sports that that's just, that structure doesn't necessarily work. And so trying to like know what phase I'm in of the year, like send mode versus training mode versus rest mode. Mm. And that's been the biggest crux climbing full time is like waning back from like the desire to just like climb and push it all the time and realizing that that's not ultimately sustainable for success or happiness. You have to like get a little bit more comfortable going in and out of different cycles throughout the year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I am endlessly like fascinated with with how difficult it is to f- get that balance right. I sc- I still screw that up all the time. I've made the mistakes Dude. <laughs> over and over and like learned the hard lessons from getting injuries or burning out or plateauing or whatever. Yeah. And I still struggle with it all the time. And like, even I'm in Waco right now, I'm just wrapping up my trip and my first month was really productive. My second month, I hardly did anything. And I can look at my calendar because I've been tracking that, tracking this, thankfully, and just see that like, I, I'm just, you know, keeping track of my days with like a plus or a minus and then color coding them. So like good days are green, bad days are red. Mm. Bad days meaning like I just didn't feel great, didn't perform well. And like- right after the one the one month mark, like my performance just took a nosedive and I've had a bunch of red days and I look at what I've been doing and I'm like, I've been, I've, I've been like trying V10s for three or four hours almost every climbing day. Like, I know I can't sustain that. I know that I've, I've screwed that up yeah. before. Like, how am I still learning this lesson? But, you know, when you have when you're living in the place that you want to be climbing and you you finally achieve this dream of like, oh, I get to do this. I get to climb all the time. It's, totally. Yeah. I don't know. You need it to start a podcast, I guess, to keep you busy on your rest days. That's what you need to do. <laughs> yeah. No, dude, I think that's great. You yeah. Know? Um, I'm sure for a lot of people like you or like myself, like for the longest time, I was like, man, all I want to do is to have the freedom to climb full time and not have to like think about anything else. Cause when you entertain that idea, you're like, man, imagine like all the things I could do and how good I could get and blah, blah, blah. You know, it is always greener on the other side. Like there are a lot of challenges to like figuring out how to be able to climb full-time sustainably and not get injured and not burn yourself out. Um, and like, yeah, feel like you're still progressing, but, um, you know, be happy with wherever, whatever stage you're in. And it is difficult. And I've, um, honestly, I'd say that's been like the biggest crux of my professional life, but it has been a fun puzzle to, mm. to figure out. And I think the ones, the people to look up to are the ones who've been doing it the longest, you know, from somebody like Peter or somebody like Alex, I've learned so much just from watching, watching Alex and, and realizing that, you know, I mean, the, 
a, a long, fulfilling climbing life is such a marathon mm. rather than a sprint. And there's this Bruce Lee quote that I really like that says, um, long-term consistency trumps short-term intensity. And so mm. I try to just focus on like, just putting in, you know, just like clocking in, you know, putting in the work and just doing things consistently, whether, you know, you feel good in the moment or not, but knowing that like long-term it's probably, it'll most likely pay off. Yeah. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. On that note, do you give yourself an off season? Like, how are you doing that strategically? Um, do you just let it happen naturally as the seasons change or do you intentionally give yourself like a off season or like an easy season or? Uh, I haven't quite figured that out yet. I've experimented. Um, last year I took more rest days than, or maybe this year before that I, I experimented with taking more rest days, which ultimately ended up being probably too much rest. And now I'm kind of, but there was a time where I like, didn't hardly rest at all. Like Peter Croft style. Um, which when you're just climbing five, 10 and 11 cracks all the time, you can kind of do it. But when you start like performance bouldering and sport climbing, like your body needs rest, you know? So I'm trying to find that balance between the two. I've experimented. I took eight weeks off when I built my van. Cause I was pretty like burned out after going hard all year to do golden gate. And then I tried to end the year in the VRG trying to climb horse latitudes, which was a bad idea. <laughs> I like dug myself a, a pretty deep hole of fatigue, mm. um, and burnout. And so, um, and chatting with my coach, he's like, yeah, if you train smart throughout the year, like you shouldn't get to the point where you feel like I'm so tired that I need to take a month off of climbing to recover. Got it. And yeah. so I've, I've kept that in mind is like, okay, maybe a little less intense throughout the year, but um, with, you know, more consistent rest. So, you know, the most I could conceive of taking off now would maybe be like two weeks, but, um, yeah, I think just having like different phases of, you know, when you're really trying to demand the most out of your body and other phases where like, yeah, you're still climbing, but you know, uh, intensity is not as high or the pressure you're putting on yourself isn't as much or, whatever. Peter honestly is the best example of that. He's always been so willing to go ramble five, five in the mountains for months and, you know, mm. not climbing anything hard for a while. He's still climbing a lot and he's still getting out and having fun. But, you know, so I think having different phases that stress your body in different ways and the more willing you are to travel and go new places, but also, uh, sample, you know, different styles of climbing, the more sustainable it, it all becomes. Yeah. 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 That, that's been interesting to me recently because I'm really zeroing in on like harder sport climbing, harder bouldering for me and trying to level up. And mm. I feel like I still need, I still have so many questions for some of the top boulderers out there, you know, that have been doing it for years and years. I'd love to talk to some yeah. of these guys and get a sense of like, how do you guys do it? And I think they do, like they do switch it up. A lot of them go sport climbing for months at a time. And I don't think they try to you know, train or maintain their, their bouldering while they're out there in Spain doing yeah. these long pumpy routes and things. But, um, still yeah. like they're just bouldering and sport climbing, which is so performance focused, right? Yeah, like yeah. I wonder that too. I wonder that a lot with the people who are very single-mindedly like I'm a boulderer or I'm a sport climber. And I'm like, how do you do that year round? <laughs> that sounds so hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There, yeah. 
there's there's more to be learned from their approach i'm sure more podcast episodes just keep this thing going yeah. um totally. so you need to get like d woods on the podcast man i'm trying he's a he's a tough guy to connect with i think because <laughs> he's just like sitting under a boulder somewhere um yeah but yeah hopefully one of these days daniel if you're listening i'd love to have you on the show or anyone Jimmy that Webb, anyone that guys, can yeah. uh yeah jimmy webb anyone that can talk to one of these guys get them on the nugget i'd be psyched yeah so I had yeah. asked you, uh, I want to check in with you. I had asked you about the classroom analogy. We've been going for two hours, oh, yes. 20 minutes. Um, oh, gosh. How you feeling? How much longer you want to go? And how interesting does that question feel versus other stuff we could talk about? Because there's a lot of stuff. No, that's, that's a good question. Um, okay. I definitely did want to make sure to hit that. I got about 10 minutes, I think. Okay. Before dinner um, time? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Dude, okay. it's so funny. Every time I come to Bishop, this is ultimately the reason why I, I like, I considered trying to post up here, um, you know, have it as kind of a home base. That's part of the struggle of living in a car. If you don't necessarily have like a, a home to go back to, whether it's your parents' home or like your partner's home or something. Um, I've always tried to like, be like, wow, maybe I could kind of set up a home base here. And ultimately I just realized I have home bases all over mm. with the places that I climb, but what ultimately made me realize that like Bishop wasn't going to work as a more like, you know, consistent home base is that all my friends here are too old. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, so every time I come to Bishop, I feel like I'm like re visiting my parents or something. <laughs> They're like, we have to have dinner at five 30 so we can be in bed by eight. Like, <laughs> is that what you're talking I'm about? Like, I'm at my friend kind of like I'm all my friends are just in their fifties and sixties here. I don't have many friends like my age. So I end up like, hanging out and you know of course they're like oh if you need to shower or do laundry or park in the driveway or we'll, well we'll make you dinner oh look i baked you some cookies or you know i'm just like <laughs> i feel like i'm visiting my parents it's really funny <laughs> um okay sorry that was another tangent no worries um, nice so yeah so i had asked you about what did I ask you about? I had asked you about the classroom analogy, the classroom analogy, big wall preparedness, learning how to climb in Yosemite. Where does the classroom analogy come into play and what is that? Yeah. So I came up with the classroom analogy with, uh, seeing many people get shut down on El Cap, generally trying to, uh, climb the nose or the South a as their first El Cap route or first big wall route in general, trying to free climb or just get up the thing. No, just trying to, to climb it wall style, yeah. deep climbing, um, multi-day. But also, you know, this comes into play with people, you know, going there, trying to climb their first free route or something. And so the classroom analogy is this. It's kind of what I talked about earlier and how, you know, a lot of people think, oh, they need to go into Yosemite with a certain level. It's like, really, you can go into Yosemite wherever level you're at and find the appropriate objectives that are going to help you improve. And... In that regard, I, I think of El Cap as the final exam, right? It's the biggest wall there. It's the hardest wall there. You know, the hardest free routes, the hardest aid routes. It's the biggest wall in North America. And so I'm just baffled sometimes when I see people come into Yosemite, having never been there before, having never even climbed a wall before, and they're going up on the nose thinking that they're going to succeed. And you're kind of like, man, where does that level of like self-confidence come from, you know? I'm like, that's essentially like going into a college biology course and being like, I know my biology so well, 
on day one, professor, give me the final exam. I'm going to ace the shit and move on. You know, like certainly there are some geniuses who are smart enough to do that, but like very small percentage, right? So I kind of think like just in the same way that you're going to, if you look at Yosemite climbing as, as like a college course or like a, you know, a master's degree is more like it given how much there is to do there. Like you have to start on the smaller things to get yourself to the level to be able to climb the bigger things. And if you look at the guidebook and you look at the grades and the classic routes from single pitch routes to, you know, big walls to, you know, moderate multi-pitches and all of that stuff is just a stepping stone that's going to teach you um, the skills to climb the hardest things there, you know? And I understand that that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of patience and a lot of people don't necessarily have that much time or energy to like give to climbing but i think the goals demand respect like el cap demands respect it is a proud rock and it is hard in many more ways than people um imagine or can't imagine until they get up there and people die up there i've seen people die up there it's 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 a gnarly place and so i think kind of just going in willy-nilly overconfident thinking like oh i'm ready to just like take the final exam on day one is should look should be looked down upon um not that if you do that that you should be like banished from yosemite but you should just be presented with like okay there is a a more logical step-by-step way to you know approach these like these bigger objectives that i think a lot of people just just overlook you know yeah that's awesome that's super helpful i think for people listening to this that that haven't been i mean that makes perfect sense and i think you know el cap is so iconic someone like me who's never been there, I tend to associate Yosemite with El Cap. Like that's the reason you go, you know? I mean, actually for me, I just want to go bouldering. But (laughs) if I were to climb some of these bigger things, like make it worth my time, you know, go do the the biggest, raddest thing. Um, Totally. But that that makes a lot of sense. And and that actually helps me kind of reframe how I might approach dipping my toe into that world at some point in the future, if I do. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you this, like, as far as that goes, you know, I'm sure there's stories behind all of them, but what were some of the formative routes that you did along the way that helped prepare you for something like El Cap? And which yeah. ones would you recommend to people? Sure. Um, so if you consider El Cap as the final exam, like you have to think about all of the skills that are required to climb it, you know, from, from crack climbing to slab climbing, from, you know, jugging all sorts of angles, low angle to vertical to overhanging to being able to, aid climb to be able to do a pendulum or in lower out, you know, there's, there's all of these skills from free climbing to aid climbing to knowing how to haul and knowing how to sleep on a wall and how to poop in a wag bag. There's all of these things, you know, all of these like different little facets. And it's the final exam because that's the one place that you have to apply all of those things in a day or over multiple days, you know, on site, whatever. Um, and so, yeah, understanding all those things and then seeking out those individual challenges like one at a time, you know, like, oh, I need to just get better at clack climbing, just going doing a bunch of single pitch cracks in Yosemite, like at Arch Rock or the Cookie or Five and Dime, Reed's Pinnacle, um, the base of El Cap, you know, to doing some like easier multi-pitch routes, like all of the routes on the manure pile buttress to Central Pillar Frenzy on Middle Cathedral, uh, the routes on higher and lower spire and higher cathedral to, you know, then you're getting into like the more classic, harder multi-pitch routes like Serenity Suns or 
the rostrum and astroman and freestone you know all those are free climbing related and so all those things are going to help with uh, the climbing you're inevitably going to do on a route like el cap or um a formation like el cap but then there are eight climbs too like a lot of people's first walls in yosemite are the south face of washington column and the west face of the leaning tower where people end up doing like their first eight climbing and that's the first place a lot of people end up sleeping on a wall or hauling a bag you know and of course you can practice those things down on the ground just like you do single pitch free climbs you can do single pitch eight climbs too mm. and like learn and practice all that uh, there's even like you know the leconte boulder that has king air i'm sure you've seen that like classic yeah. highball v10 yeah. dude right under king air is this bolt ladder that people like practice aid climbing on there's like, this... i saw john glassberg yeah, was... and, uh, <laughs> and sean rabbit too i was there the day both of them climbed it and it was this oh, total no scene because there are these guys like you know climbing this bolt ladder right below it was such a it was such a cool juxtaposition uh, yeah i'm glad you mentioned that because yeah that's immediately what my mind jumped to is that you know john's a great photographer he has these amazing images of him and sean trying this huge insanely impressive highball it's hard to even like wrap your mind around the scale of it and you can literally see two guys like aid climbing 20 feet below them somehow on this boulder yeah. it's just it's just hilarious <laughs> it's <Yeah>. pretty funny <laughs> well, that's so, awesome uh i think it's yeah it's it's looking at um a big objective like el cap and thinking of the skills that you need and then uh you know seeking out smaller objectives that give you those skills mm. Well, that's great, Jordan. Super helpful. And um, thanks so much, man. This has been amazing. Yeah. I have, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I have way more stuff on my, on my uh, outline here than we could possibly get to today. So I think I'm going to yeah. immediately move all this stuff over to a document for our follow-up and just save it. And cool. we can, we can continue the conversation, hopefully in Yosemite and try Thriller. Yeah, this fall. If I, I I hope to try it this spring. It might be too warm. We'll see. But uh, yeah, might end up just needing more time in the fall to do it in the fall, anyways. But the fall is when it's like, oof, it's mm. temps and it's crisp and it's awesome. You think October, November? Oh yeah, yeah. I'll be there. I believe in November. Okay. October can still be pretty hot. Okay. Um, but yeah, November, December is pretty awesome. Okay. We'll stay in touch. So. Yeah, man. Thanks for making it happen and, and going long. I hope there's some good nuggets in there for for people. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much, man. This was super interesting. Really good to get to know you. And um, best of luck this spring. Do you have a goal yeah. for this spring? What's next for you? Um, I do, you know. Um, I got a long list of things. I haven't had a big Yosemite season in the way that I'd really like to in a while. Um, the past few seasons have kind of just had like one, one or two things that, that stand out, but given how much diversity there is there, I really like to have like a full palette of, uh, Yosemite climbing, like from bouldering goal to a single pitch crack or sport climbing goal to like a, a short, you know, hard, like eight to 10 pitch route to like a, in a day route to then maybe like a link up or like a a solo aid climb or something you know there's just so many things that you can do there and i try to like if i have a season where i get to do you know a different goal and like all these different styles i'm super happy so oh, i'll cool. be there for three months i'm trying to come in more fit than i've been in the past and more prepared with partners and, and things so yeah i'm really excited so 
So hopefully, hopefully in our follow-up, we'll have more to talk about than just currently what's on the list. Hopefully there will be some new things that we can talk about too. Awesome. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Where can people follow you and connect with you? Um, I think, I think just on Instagram. I don't really think I'm on anything else. Yeah. That seems to be the one these days. Yeah. 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 I don't, I'm not really on Facebook anymore. I have some like random videos on YouTube that people might find interesting, but (laughs) just like some raw climbing footage kind of thing. Nice. Um, But yeah, yeah. Mainly just Instagram at Canon JTC. Sweet. I will be sure to link to it and whatever else we talked about in this conversation. If there's anything else we talked about that uh, it makes sense to have a link for, I will find that link and I will put it in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com as always. Sounds good. And dude, I, I'm psyched to your, you're interested in bouldering in the valley. I'd love to show you around and then hopefully our styles could complement each other and I'll learn some some things from you that I can apply to my, my own bouldering there. Yeah, man. I mean, yeah, if I can if I can pass on anything, that'd be amazing. And I'm sure I have way more to learn from you as far as like anything to do with climbing more than a hundred feet off the ground. So yeah, that'd be really fun. <laughs> <laughs> And with Tom, you know, willing, I mean, he's who I borrow my borrow crash pads from. He's got like a stash of 20 in his garage because he, <laughs> he likes to be comfortable. He's, he doesn't want to get hurt bouldering. So yeah, yeah. You know, bouldering with Tom, you know, you're, you know, you're going to be safe. I'm all about it. That sounds great. Right on. All right, Steven. Well, good luck to you the rest of your season as well. I'll chat, chat with you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, man. All right. Good night. Right. Good night. Hey friends, thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jordan. I actually texted with him yesterday to tell him his episode was going to be coming out and he was actually climbing El Cap. He was texting me back from the side of El Cap, which is just perfect. This guy's out there getting after it all the time, which is just rad, super inspiring. So I really enjoyed that. I hope to talk to Jordan again this fall. Hope you guys loved it. Before you go, don't forget to check out the Grasshopper Board. If you haven't seen this yet, head over to Instagram and look for Grasshopper Climbing or visit grasshopperclimbing.com. You can learn more about the board, find out where you can try one for yourself. And if you love it, tell them I sent you. And when you get ready to order your very own Grasshopper Board, you can save big money on your order just by listening to The Nugget. Also, be sure to check out Climbwell. Their next retreat is coming up June 9th through the 12th in beautiful Rifle, Colorado. You can find more information at climbwell.co, that's .co, and you can save 10% off your ticket when you use code NUGGET10 at checkout. And that is it, my friends. Thank you for listening. I hope you have an amazing week. Get out there, have amazing adventures, learn along the way, and be safe while you're doing it. Thank you guys again for listening. We'll see you next time.
Like we do it, like we do it. Cause no one can do it like we do. 